Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. As always, haha, we are here to talk about stuff. Yeah, yeah. As always. Alright. I uh, mean, we've actually secretly been making podcasts weekly since yes, the last one. Yes. We just didn't release them because that's We're our, mad at you. Yeah. It's our secret plan. Yeah. Something like that. Alright, been two months. Haha, been a break. I mean, I don't know, what, what can we say? Been summer. Yeah. We've been doing stuff. Yeah, we've been busy. I texted you a couple times and you never responded and I'm like, eh, he's probably busy. Yeah. Yeah. I just did not have any time okay. or like energy to do the podcast like past June basically, so. Alright. It happens. It's it's we're, we're in, it's a new season. We're. Yes. So. It's, we, we, we took a seasonal break. We took a bit of a seasonal break. Stuff happened though, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to get back on a more consistent schedule. I can't promise it'll be weekly forever now, but I know things are... Life is moving in a direction where we'll be able to do this more consistently. The world is moving in a direction because, you know, Doctor Who is coming back. That'll give us weekly content. Atlas USA is still insisting that Persona 5 is coming out in 2015. Yeah, I don't believe that, but... If that does happen, like... Sure, there's lots of there's lots of stuff for us to do. There's lots of stuff to happen. But that means we got to clear the slate before the fall, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to have... At least one episode. This might be a two-parter. It might be a three-parter. I don't know. We're going to record it. We're going to split it up as it lays. Yeah. We're going to see what happens. But this is how we spent our summer vacation episode. Our spectacular, whatever yes. you want to call it. It's a, it's a very special episode. Yes. So we're going to talk about all sorts of things that happened over the summer. I'm going to talk about a vacation I took. Sean's going to talk about games he played. Yes. We're going to talk about Batman Arkham Knight, because we both played it. Yes. And we were going to when do When it a, came out. Yeah. We, we played when it came out, and we were going to do a big episode, and I had notes and everything, and then it just didn't happen. Yeah. But that's okay. It was a great game. We need to talk about it. Um, what else? We got... I've seen movies. You've seen movies. I saw... I've seen movies. I've seen one movie that is, like, fit to talk about on the okay. podcast. I finished watching Twin Peaks, finally. Maybe we can talk about that. Sure. I don't know. We'll see. I finished watching Twin Peaks like two years ago. Awesome. So I'm sure I remember everything to have that conversation. I, I forgot if you'd said you watched the whole thing or not. Yeah. Did you see the whole I, thing? I don't think I ever finished season two. Okay. So no. You got it. There's a lot of shit to wade through in season two. Yeah. But when you get to the end, holy crap. Yeah, I've always heard that the, that the end of season two is really good. But it's, I never it is, it is David Lynch at his David Lynchiest. That's all I'll say. Fantastic. Yeah. Is the whole episode just shot in, like, negative and, like, flipped upside down or something? Some of it. Like, great. <laughs> fucking great. Uh, about 30 minutes of it are done completely with backwards talk. It's fucking Is that good enough for you? Great! Yeah. Yeah! Okay. And I'll, I'm not kidding. About 30 minutes of it. Yeah. I'll definitely rewatch Twin Peaks around the time <laughs> the new stuff comes out. If it ever comes out. They're supposed to be yeah, shooting it next true. month. I still don't believe it. But we'll see. It would be really cool if it happened. Maybe all of the new Twin Peaks will just be in backwards talk. Fuck it. I I think David Lynch, you know, the last movie he made was Inland Empire, which I haven't seen, but was supposed to be, like, super experimental for him. So maybe he's just going to go further in that direction, and the new Twin Peaks will be the most avant-garde thing to ever happen to television. Or maybe he's just decided to be, like, completely change his style and just be utterly conventional, totally bland, utterly unrecognizable as a director. The whole thing is there's been all these rumors, like, you know, like, is it going to be nine episodes? Is it going to be 18? How many episodes is this thing going to be? And at the Television Critics Association press tour this summer, uh, the head of Showtime, this is just a couple weeks ago, said, well, look, they're starting shooting it in September. David's going to shoot the whole thing straight through. They're going to do all of it. And they're not going to know how many episodes it is until they get in the cutting room, and then they're going to figure it out. That could either be the best thing or the worst thing. Yeah, that's... <laughs> it, it ends up just being one eight-hour episode. Yeah. Like, that's I, just how you felt it should come out. Well, we will see, definitely. So we're devoting an, a, a, one day to Twin Peaks. Yeah. 
It could either be... That's also how they did Arrested Development Season 4, and that was a disaster, so we'll see. I have more faith in David Lynch than the Arrested Development people, but we'll see. Yeah. In any case, uh, that's that's not current news, so let's talk yeah. about current stuff. Um, where should we start, Sean? I don't know. You just start where you want to start. Want to start. Okay, that's what I was going to say. This, this is a grab bag of an episode. This is how I spent my summer vacation, and the most important thing to me this summer vacation is last week, or two weeks ago now, my family and I, we went to Austin, Texas, and I went to RTX, which is the Rooster ah, yes. Teeth convention. Was this is, the third RTX they've done, or is it the, the fifth? The fifth, really? Yeah. Man, that's They started in 2011. Fuck. Yeah. That just makes me realize how long <laughs> it's like. That's a weird time reference for me now. Yeah, well, RTX, if you don't know, the Rooster Teeth is the online video company. They started making Red vs. Blue. They make a more stuff than I can keep track of now. Yes. Um, but it's kind of interesting. So I'd always wanted to go to RTX, because I was a big Rooster Teeth fan in the day, and I yeah. still watch a lot of their stuff. But it's funny, I don't watch their main stuff anymore. Like, I, have, I haven't watched Red vs. Blue in three years. Yeah, I haven't I think, I think we stopped watching Red vs. Blue at, like, the same time. Yeah, during season 11. And I've never really seen Ruby. It's just, I don't have anything yeah. against it. Yeah. It's just not my thing. Although they... Um, Released that trailer for like the Japanese dub. They have some like really well known Japanese do. actresses like voicing that yeah. show, which is like weird. That like I look at that like I watch the trailer for. I was like, this weirdly seems more authentic than the original. Product. That's that's oh, what I was, was because I mean obviously the voice acting is just going to be better because they're like professional voice actresses, yeah. like really highly regarded. That's what I was going to say is that. With Ruby, I always thought it sounded like a kind of subpar dub of itself. Yeah. So I kind of want to hear the Japanese way, version. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I don't watch like their biggest tier productions, but I'm a big fan of their podcast. Um, I like some of their other stuff. And just the history of it. I like those guys. I like yeah, those yeah, people. Yeah, definitely. And my brother is an even bigger fan because he watches Achievement Hunter stuff all the time. He knows all their stuff. He, I think he's kept up with Red vs. Blue. He, I think he watches the seasons when they're done. He hasn't like watched it week yeah. to week. But anyway, so... So he was really excited to do this, and finally, just like, we always wanted to go, it just worked out this year um, to do it, and it's, I have so many things I could say about it, but I'll start with this. Um, this year was the biggest one they've had so far. They expanded to 45,000 attendees for God this damn. convention, and it was in three locations. They filled the entire Austin Convention Center, and then two hotels nearby, the Marriott and the Hilton, and they had big ballrooms and stuff they were filling there. So, like, the biggest ballroom they had, which is where they did the podcast panel and some of the other cool panels, that is the biggest room I've ever been in in my life. Mm. And they packed in just thousands and thousands of people into that thing. And you would think that would be miserable. And that's kind of why I'd always been hesitant to do this, is convention's just not my thing. I don't want to go stand in lines. I don't want to deal with that many people. This was nothing but pleasant, this experience. Cool. Like, they know how to run a fucking convention. Like, there was never... There was one thing where there was kind of a miserable line for, but it was kind of a separate thing. I'll talk about that later. But for the most part, the lines were so well managed. They had a rule where lines couldn't start until an hour before the thing was supposed to start. Now, that didn't always work because you can't get rid of people, and people are jerks and will ignore the rules sometimes. But for the most part, it wasn't just standing in lines all the time. They really organized it well. We had good seats for almost everything we wanted to see. We got into pretty much everything we wanted to see. And all the people there were cool. I think it's kind of nice to have a convention where everyone has at least a baseline of we all like the same stuff. Sure, yeah. And everyone, I think, is nice and polite and stuff because it's a happy thing. Like, Rooster Teeth, one of the things I've always appreciated them is they are a force on the internet that just puts out positivity. Yeah, They yeah. don't contribute to the negative you know, shit of the internet. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone there thinks the same way. And I obviously is enthusiastic to be there, and no one's there to ruin someone else's time. 
Except these two kids who tried to cut in line. And they were like 14 and probably are too young to be watching Richard C. stuff. So they should have left. But that was weird. Other than that. 14 is not too young. 14 is like the perfect age. Perfect age. Okay. Like, let's be fucking honest. That's true. Like, that's true. I can't even remember how old I was when I first started, started watching Red Blue. Blue. That's a yeah. good point. Anyway. But, so it was a really nice experience. And I have a couple things I could talk about. Because I could go through the whole thing and I won't do that. But sure, let's yeah. talk about a couple of the things. So, All right. first thing I want to... <laughs> Bring this in and show it to Sean. Uh, the first day we started with, they did autographs in a different way this year. Where I'd heard in previous years, I think they just had autograph times and you would come and line up. But those would be clusterfucks because everyone would want to go get you yeah. know Bernie Burns autograph or something. So now they did it in a ticketed way where if you had a ticket to the event, they would send you a code. And then you use that code to redeem something for one autograph session. And oh, then everyone who got to go, if you got a ticket for that, you were guaranteed to get a spot in line and get an autograph and stuff. Which was a really nice way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, but you could only, the way it was done was each ticket had a code attached to it. So I went to get my brother Thomas's code first because I knew he really wanted to see they had Bernie Burns and Matt Hullum, who are kind of the founders of the company, yeah. in a signing together. So I got that for him, and then I was trying to get one for myself for that one, and it was sold out by the time I got that one because this was happening so fast. Yeah. So I got to meet Meg Turney and Ashley Jenkins, who do their mm. new stuff, and I like them. I'm fans of them. So that was fun. Uh, and they were cool to meet and everything. But, Thomas got to meet Bernie, and the whole thing was Thomas wanted to bring the red versus blue Blu-rays we have to get signed. Because that would make that sense, That right? makes sense. Yeah. It's like, yeah, the thing they did to get started. Right. But we didn't know where they were. <laughs> we realized on the night before we were going to leave for Austin. And I had come down to my parents' house because we were going to leave to go out of town. Yeah. And I I think they might be here in the apartment somewhere. I They must be. Because I wouldn't Thomas, be surprised if that was the case. Thomas didn't have them. They weren't at our house. So they must be here somewhere. But we couldn't find them. So I said, oh, that's okay. We can turn this 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 into lemonade. You know, we can, we can make this work. So I said, Thomas, I want you to just take this note card to Bernie. Tell him I lost the Blu-rays. And tell him just insult me. And I got the greatest personalized autograph of all time. Go ahead and read that, Sean. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for losing the Blu-rays, dumbass. Bernie. P.S. Your dirtbag. Sarge, it's Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the greatest? That's yeah, that's yeah. pretty good. That's way I better. thought you should have I mean probably the timing would not have been able to work out, but you should have gotten yeah. a Strangerhood DVD and had <laughs> him sign that. Okay, here's what I was gonna say though. Speaking of Strangerhood, one of the panels we saw on the first day was this was really cool. It was Founding Fathers of Rooster Teeth, and they had the original like six guys up there. And that was a really cool thing to see, because they don't do stuff Were together. Were they all much dressed anymore. up as like the founding fathers of America? No. That would have been pretty good. No. They did not. I saw a lot of cool cosplay. They did not. They, they they themselves did not do cosplay. That's unfortunate. It's okay. But there was this one point where Jeff just started ripping into the strangerhood. And it was like <laughs> he said he said you know normally like we he was trying to explain how they in the beginning were trying to figure out how many DVDs to press of Red versus Blue and they're like do you think people would buy ten thousand of these if we press ten thousand and like I don't know that sounds like we're gonna have a lot of overstock and they did that and they famously sold out and yeah all that and they said so when we did the strangerhood we got kind of cocky. And we're still selling those. And they explain, like, if you go to the Rooster store, it's just automatically in your cart. You have to, like, deselect it. We just give them away. And it's like, and, he's, and then everyone's kind of laughing. He's like, you're laughing. None of you have seen that, have you? Have any of you in this room seen The Strangerhood? And then a guy raised a DVD he just had with him. And he's like, that's the one guy. That's the one guy who brought The Strangerhood. It was really funny. He just yeah. tore into that. And I've never seen it, but... I I I don't know if I ever watched all of it. I did. I definitely watched some of the Stranger. I remember thinking it was okay at the okay. time. Anyway, Jeff does not like it, so that was very funny. I mean, it's not. It's definitely not one of their best things. There's a reason why there's no Strangerhood season two. There is. It's coming out next week. Of course. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm serious. Seriously. 
Yeah. It was for their Indiegogo for their movie. Nah. They set it at a goal they never thought they would get to. Sure. And then they yeah. got to it, so they're making a four-episode second season. Okay. Yeah. That's not a real second season. No, but... And I'm not even sure how they're doing it. Maybe they're just doing CGI, because that's probably easier than actually doing the machinima for it. Yeah, than going, like, loading up Sims 3, I think, yeah. what it was on. They have a whole animation staff now. I think that'd be a lot easier. But, you know, so we saw a lot of good panels. We saw the Rooster Teeth Animated Adventures panel. That was a lot of fun. If you haven't seen the intro video for that yet, that they did, they, they do a different intro video every year. I think mm. last year was the one where they parodied the Kanye video, Bound 2, mm. with Gus and everyone. As their RTAA selves, so that was a lot of fun. Um, we got to see one of the John Erler, who voices Agent North in Red vs. Blue, I think, one of yeah. the freelancers from that arc of the show. Yeah, he's, that sounds right. He's in this group called Master Pancake Theater, and they're kind of like Mystery Science Theater 3000, except they also do stuff like they play with the movie and they cut stuff out and add stuff in and do some of that. And they had a live show of, they were doing Terminator 2. And it nice. was the first night. We got into that. Got great seats, too. And that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Those guys are really funny. I know they tour sometimes. I don't know if they've ever been to Colorado. But if they come here, I, I would love to see them again. They are very funny. And I wouldn't have thought Terminator 2 would have been that ripe for it. Because I think usually they do bad movies. Yeah. I know that same weekend they were advertising they were doing Twister at the Draft House down there in Austin. And that seems like a more fitting movie. Yeah, yeah. Twister's awful. But Terminator 2 is a good movie. But they did a great job with it, and it was just, yeah. I, I think I can see in like my mind's eye how yeah. you could well how John, you could do that with T two. John Erler did the funniest Arnold Schwarzenegger impression I've ever seen, and he kept it up for basically the whole movie. And every time it started to get stale, he would find a new way to make it funny. That was just that was fantastic. That was one of the highlights. And also, again, that's with you know like two thousand people in that yeah, room, yeah. so it's it's very funny. They had a drinking game, so you know. When you and it was every time there was an explosion, and you realized very early on, oh, if you actually followed this drinking game, you would die of alcohol yeah, you'd poisoning. Be fucking dead. Yeah. yeah, there are a lot of explosions. there are a lot of explosions in Terminator Two. Yeah, it's an explosive action movie. It is. Uh, they had that, and also whenever you see the Pepsi logo, a lot of Pepsi logos in that movie. Huh. I didn't, I've never noticed that. Yeah. Huh. Yep. It was it was the nineties. That's that's the yeah yeah. I, I would, then maybe didn't know maybe it wasn't even a marketing deal. Maybe it was just like they couldn't avoid <laughs> right. having Pepsi logos appear in their thing. I just and I do when when they mentioned that I remember started mem- remembering that from the nineties because I like remember my VHS tape of the Michael Keaton Batman starts with the Pepsi ad with Alfred trying oh, to yeah. get Batman a Pepsi and I think a lot of tapes had Pepsi ads at the start for whatever yeah. reason. So that was fun. The second day we had a couple of good things. There were some interesting panels. My maybe just favorite panel we went to because it was so interesting was Meg Turney did one where it was just her and it was called How to Handle Haters and I was curious like I want to see what's this like and she actually had a really like just thoughtful thing about internet you know internet hate basically and how to deal with that and what that issue is today and it was very nuanced thoughtful and she went through about 20 minutes of her own presentation and then like she hadn't fully timed it she wasn't sure how much time it was going to be so she just opened the floor to questions and normally questions at these things are really awkward if you've listened yes. to this <laughs> yeah but I mean they're great at Rooster Teeth though because those guys take it and just yeah, make fun they're, of them they're funny yeah but um, like at the podcast panel we went to you know just just awful questions no, yeah. nothing good they're all yeah. awful yeah any of like and, the really general panels yeah. just always have the fucking worst questions but this was amazing because we went back and forth back and forth and every single person in those lines had a great question and a thoughtful question that, that then she had thoughtful things to say about. And that was one of the more interesting things I've ever seen from a Rooster Teeth person. Because it was just very thoughtful and introspective and serious in a way. Obviously, as a comedy network, they don't get to yeah, be yeah. much. But that these people do deal with. And yeah. 
it's an it was just a really interesting thing to see. So I loved that. Um, I, I loved a couple other panels. The podcast panel was a blast. It was you know I I listened to the Rooster Teeth podcast. I've listened to it since it started, and it's just been a long time. It's my favorite thing they do. It still is. And so it was cool to see it done live. Yeah. It was just like, I'm in the room, and I can go put this on my podcast app if I want to later. And be like, oh, I was there for that. That was just kind of neat. Did you learn any hot tips by observing their podcast to bring to our podcast? Um, we need a British guy who's stupid. I, I, I can, mean, I can, Ricky Gervais did it? I, um, I can play Ricky a stupid British it? guy if okay. we need to... Oi! Stupid thing! <laughs> there we go. Are we on... Did we make it big? I don't know. I don't know. Huh. Um, yeah, I mean, you just... I don't know. I didn't observe much. You know, they, they talk about different things than us. I mean, if we wanted to probably get more views, we'd have to talk about our dicks more. That's really... <laughs> that's it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since I listened to the Rooster Teeth podcast, but that's a fair observation. Yeah. Maybe that is the key to the popularity. Yeah. A lot but, of dick talk. And if we ever had a woman on this podcast, we'd have to say really inappropriate things to her. It's true, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but we'd have to find someone who could, like, a woman who could make a lot of really, really bad puns constantly. <laughs> in a way that is actually legitimately really impressive. Yeah, so the coolest thing we did at RTX, though, is they had a concert they set up. This was Saturday night at the Paramount in Austin. And it was the Video Game Orchestra, which is a group from Boston. Uh, they're, like, kind of a rock group, but they also, you know, have string players and stuff. And they do video game music. And it was them. And then it was Jeff Williams, who wrote the music for some of the latter seasons of Red vs. Blue, but also Ruby. And while I don't watch Ruby, I have the soundtracks for Ruby because I love his music. And I think that that music is fantastic. Mm. And it was him and his daughter who's the vocalist on all those pieces. And they came out for a little bit, did a set, too, with the Video Game Orchestra, which was awesome. And then they had the Bare Naked Ladies... Of course. One of the biggest groups in the world, and they're friends with Rooster Teeth. Yeah. And they came out and did a concert at RTX, and this was after the Video Game Orchestra. So it was a solid three and a half hour concert. All of this free, by the way. It all comes with the badge. Nice. So that was nice. And just one of the best concerts I've ever been to. And I, I do go to a fair number of concerts during the year. I like this kind of stuff. And this was just, this was so good. The Video Game Orchestra was great. The Bare Naked Ladies are one of the best groups I've ever seen live. And it's kind of funny, because I've listened to their music before, and it's not totally my thing I just I, it's fine but it's not great or I didn't think that but they are a group who are much better live than they are in the studio and to me those are the best bands if you sure, can be yeah. better live than you are in the studio and they are much better live and they're so much fun they're very funny you can tell why they're friends with the Rooster Teeth guys they have a very similar sense of kind of improvisational humor yeah. um, so this was just, that was cool that was the only one though where you know the line for that, because it was a small theater and it was a hot you know, ticket item for RTX, we were kind of there for like four hours in the sun in Austin on the right. hottest day of the year. Yeah. Nice. That was the closest I've probably ever come to passing out from heat stroke. But, nice. you know. Yeah. And they wrapped that line all around the block. I mean, it was kind of interesting. I, like, Gus made a funny joke at the podcast panel of, he's like, every weekend in Austin, there's some stupid event that shuts down traffic, and I like one week of the year, we get to be the thing that shuts down traffic. <laughs> So, and Austin's a cool place. It's not my favorite place in the world. I wouldn't want to move there. And it's not because of the heat. I, you know, I know Austin's hot. I would get used to it. Yeah. Like, that's what my family kept bitching about. I'm like, you would get, it's like, how would anyone ever live here? I'm like, you get used to it. Yeah. You adapt. People yeah, live it's here. Not it's not like the Sahara Desert, you yeah. know. Like, yeah, it's not like impossible to survive. Right. In the wasteland of Austin, Texas. And the other funny thing is because of the heat, every building in Austin is air-conditioned heavy-duty. And it's like that Paramount Theater that the concert was in. I've seen theaters like that in Denver. Those buildings would never in a million years be air-conditioned here. Right. And they are like heavy-duty air-conditioned there. And that kind of made me laugh. 
because we just I think a lot of old buildings in Denver they don't bother with that because yeah. it's rarely hot enough to warrant it but anyway it was funny so but Austin's a cool place they had a lot of good food best place and we went to some of the places they used to talk about on the podcast the best place was definitely Gordo's which is a place that sells giant donuts with bacon and other stuff on it like his meals right yes that is a good place yeah 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 I'd like to go to Austin someday it's a cool place. It's it's fun, and it, they like that whole thing that I've heard about before. Also about live music in Austin. It's totally true because we would walk home every night. It was about a twenty thirty minute walk back to the hotel, and you would just pass like bands everywhere and stuff like that, and lots of homeless people. Good God, Austin does not do a lot for their homeless. Yeah, they're everywhere. There's another thing about it on the RT podcast. They did talk about homeless. Yep, people. a lot. Yeah. No, there was one point where I think we were in line one morning for. Maybe it was the Achievement Hunter panel. And across the street, there was a homeless guy just shouting at the top of his lungs for, like, a good hour. Nice. Yeah. So, anyway, that was my big summer thing was RTX. It was a blast. If you're a fan of Rooster Teeth and you ever want to do that, it's a really cool convention. They, I would never have imagined, honestly, enjoying something like that as much as I did. And I think that's, like, the highest praise I can give it. Yeah. And and just, like, if you like Rooster Teeth too, we got to meet or see... Pretty much everyone from the company we would have wanted to meet or see. And that's... I don't know how they do that with that many people there. Right, That's pretty cool. So, yeah, definitely highest recommendation for that. Cool. What's something from the summer you want to talk about? Um... Yeah, I I definitely didn't do anything, like, elaborate, like, go on a big vacation and see... Go to a big panel. Although I was just thinking, like, as you you were talking about how with RTX, how, how much it's grown. Like, I wonder at what point, like, the, like modern like smaller sort of like video game community oriented uh, panels which are like mostly dominated by what I think are maybe four packs yeah conventions Wait, how, is, how is that going how is that market like still growing it seems insane to me it just gets bigger and bigger you know RTX is doing their first expansion they're doing RTX Australia next uh, right, January yeah. and I'm sure they'll do more in the US like uh, I think I read an interview with Barbara Dunkelman where she said their goal actually is more countries first they want to do like England and some of those yeah that makes sense but it, it is and I I don't know I think it's the thing of when you look at it though 45,000 people is a tiny fraction of their audience that's true it's yeah. minuscule but if you have a passionate enough niche audience online which I don't know if you can call a rooster teeth niche anymore yeah I wouldn't I yeah. wouldn't probably um, but if you get that many people I think I think you can bring people together like this. And I think it's something that we're starting to discover as the internet becomes more the dominant mainstream way of consuming yeah. media. Uh, and I think I, I think there's a lot of what is considered mainstream now that doesn't understand the power of this kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's going to change. And when that stops being a secret, that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, because it's just like, I feel like every single year there's like two or three more conventions that like mm-hmm. people I follow on Twitter who are like in video game media and stuff are just talking about constantly having to go to all these different fucking conventions and stuff I'm like yeah. this seems crazy like I would if I was in that business of having to cover video games or if like you're making an indie game who wants to go to all these panels for ex- or uh, conventions for exposure like it's just it's an interesting situation yeah definitely yeah so I guess okay now let's talk about J-Stars cause some video games let's yeah. do some video games yeah I want to talk about J-Stars explain what this is okay so it's a game because you played it when you like ported it from yeah well let's explain what it is first so J-Stars Victory Versus is a game that came out in Japan I think last summer yeah that's what I was trying to remember the timeline so yeah it's last summer and it's a Shonen Jump crossover game for the Playstation 3 or it was originally yeah and so it has all the character or it has characters from all the different Shonen Jump 
manga universes and you know you can it's got maps for everyone it's a really cool game it's got all the voice actors it's got all the music uh and when it came out i thought there was no way it would ever come out here because how do you get the license for that internationally so i imported it because i wanted to play it it wasn't that much and uh, i loved it played it on the ps3 it was in japanese i really couldn't do the story mode because i couldn't read it all but um could play the game just fine i can read all the menus and stuff because it's all katakana yeah. and stuff like that. And I enjoyed it, but it just came out in America. So. Yeah, yeah. so I played God Over the Summer when it came out. J-Star's Victory versus Plus, Plus, which is, it's on the PS4 and the Vita. It's out over here. It's like, you know, obviously it's all in English, except for they don't have, if you're someone who only really, like, watches these shows they like with, like, an English dub kind of thing, there's no English dub voice option, like, which makes sense because there's plenty of those characters have not have never come over here. Like some of them are from series that don't have anime adaptations, or at least when the game came out, they didn't. Because there's one character, Kuro Sensei, who has a different Kuro Sensei who has a different voice actor in the game because the game came out before the anime came out originally. But now this version came out after the anime adaptation of that show came out. Which I watched the anime adaptation. <laughs> it was like really weird hearing a completely different voice actor playing that character. There and are... I had like literally just watched the anime and then got this game. It's funny. There are also characters who had an anime when the game came out and don't anymore, like Toriko. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> In the time between the Japanese and American release, Toriko crashed and burned. Yeah. And is dead. Ah, stupid Toriko. Yeah, that. My opinion on Toriko is like a concept that I only like saw as like a vague description on like Hulu. I've not changed that. That sounds really fucking dumb based on the characters in the game. <laughs> but yeah, so basically, it's a it's a type of fighting game that doesn't really come out over here much. Where like I know there's like a Gundam game that has a very similar style that I hear about sometimes that doesn't really come out over here because Gundam doesn't sell over here. But it's basically like an arena fighter. I guess a team arena fighter would be how I would explain it. Where it's sort of full 3D environments, a behind-the-back kind of view. If you played some of like the modern Dragon Ball games, like Dragon Ball Xenoverse, there's some similarities in terms of like what the basic gameplay is like. But the, the, the overall... It's, it's interesting because the game's not about... Like, the gameplay is not about a traditional fighting game kind of thing where you're thinking about, like, combo strings and, like, execution on special moves. It's more about this push and pull of, like... Basically, when you decide to do an attack, you commit to doing that attack. Or if you decide to block, you commit to blocking. And there's, like, very much a, like, I'm going to attack and then I'm going to defend. Or I'm going to defend, defend, attack, defend, attack, attack. Like, it, it's very methodical in that way. And so if you're someone who's, like, thinking about picking up this game, like, no going in that it's a kind of fighting game that you've never played before, and it's going to take some getting used to sort of the rhythm of the game. Because it probably took me a good few hours before I felt like, okay, I kind of get what this game is about. Like, you're not, like, you know, doing, like, these, like, insane 50 combo juggles or something, and, like... Like, because there's a really generous recovery period every time you finish an attack on an enemy, assuming your attack was successful. And so you really have to get to that sense of the rhythm of the gameplay. I agree, and I will say this. If you're someone who, like me, does not like 3D fighters, like the recent Dragon Ball games, like, I could never get into Xenoverse because I just realized I really hate that if it's not a side view fighter, I just can't do it. Sure. This is the only one like that I've ever enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, when I compare it to Xenoverse, it is not, like, 100% like Xenoverse, but, like, yeah. the, the large arena sort of 3D concept is the same. But, yeah, the 
you know, the, the specifics of the fighting mechanics are completely different. I just think it's a lot deeper and better managed than a lot of those similar ones I've played. Sure, is yeah. what I would say. Yeah, so... I guess, like, where to start, like, for me... The thing I really appreciated about it is that I... I feel like I'm, like, for someone living in America, I'm kind of the perfect audience for this game. Just because, like, I've seen the, like, anime series for probably over half of the characters. Which is pretty hard to do. That's a lot of fucking... That's a lot more than me. Yeah, that's a lot. Because they have... Basically, they have... What like Goku, Vegeta, and Frieza from Dragon Ball Z? That's probably like the most well known over here. They've got a bunch of characters from One Piece, which I've like. One Piece is probably the biggest thing in the game that I've never seen. I think they have four or five characters from One Piece, and one of them is Luffy. And like you've watched a bunch of One Piece stuff, and you said you don't know who the other characters are. No, I've read like the first twenty volumes of One Piece, and I didn't. I've never gotten to any of those characters. Yeah, they've got what they've got like three people I think from Naruto. They've got the Yu Yu Hakusho, Rurouni Kenshin. They've got Bo 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 Bo. He's Which in there. He's great. That's he's a great, a really player. fucking good addition. Yeah. They've got like what? Like Joe, they've got a couple of people from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Uh, they have Arale from Doctor Slump, which I like. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. They have like uh, who else do they have? I said Rurouni Kenshin. They have two of them. I'm trying to think of who the other big ones. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is yeah, in there. JoJo's um, got Saint Seiya's in there. Which I've, that I've always thought that series was fucking terrible. That character's so boring. It's like every time I see him, like you, are, you fucking suck. Oh, they've got a couple of people from Bleach. Who that's like? I guess I'll, I'll I guess I'll start there. Now the thing about it is the story mode stuff. Since you never really got to do it because of the Japanese. So yeah, the main mode that I played was the story mode, which is called J Adventure. And how it's kind of structured is they have four different sort of set, main sets of three characters that you kind of pick from that determine. Sort of the, the general story beats, like the, the story stuff is really light in the game, but like the different characters you pick kind of determine what characters you're going to play in some of the characters and encounters you're going to have over the course of the story. So you basically have there's Naruto, there's uh, Luffy from One Piece, and then there's Toriko, who he like Goku is on Toriko's team. It's just like no, like I was like I want to obviously Goku's the one I most want to play as because it's the one I'm the biggest fan of is Dragon Ball, but I'm not gonna fucking pick Toriko just to like have Goku on my team. So unfortunately, I just passed that up. So I I picked the Ichigo team because I really like Bleach, and then Ichigo has uh, Hiei from Yu Yu Hakusho and uh, Oga from the show called Beelzebub that I hadn't seen. When I was playing the game, but I liked the character so much in the game that I sought out the show. And the show is pretty good because the character is that. I, yeah. yeah, the character is of Oga is basically he's this high school delinquent who just like gets in a bunch of fights. Who one day like is walking on the side of the river, or he's he's in a fight on the side of a river like bank, and then he just finds this baby that the baby becomes really attached to him, and then he finds out that the baby is actually like a baby demon lord, baby Beelzebub. And who basically, like, he has superpowers now, and then he just gets in a bunch of fights. And that's the entire character, and he's it's really fucking good. So the whole story mode is basically, there's this, like, jump battle tournament or something that a mysterious voice from the, up above, who, like, is probably the best character in the game, because he just chimes in and says random shit all the time. Tells you, it's like, okay, like, go and kind of fuck shit up, we're having a big tournament. And so then you're just in an airship cruising around with like the three of the most badass characters in anime ever 
just going around and fucking shit up. And that's the entire story mode. And it's pretty actually fucking awesome. Like, I had a lot of fun doing the story mode. Because there's not a lot of, like, like the story mode's not fully voice acted. Because that would be fucking insane if it was. But there is enough sort of, like, weird character moments and dialogue. Of, like, just all the bizarre encounters you have. And all the weird fucking character pair-ups that you can end up with. It's just it's like, you know, some of the characters that they pull are, like, got, like stuff from... Stuff that I don't really have much exposure to. Like, there's this, like, cop guy from a, like, comedy series over there that he's just, like... I think his name is Drotado or something like that. And he's just, like, this weird comedy cop dude who's, like, he fucking throws, like, bombs and his special ultimate move is he gets yelled at by his boss in big anime letters that then fall from the sky and crush people. It's, like, it's shit like that that you just constantly running into the most bizarre fucking shit and you're also you can pick up support characters that sort of expand the cast beyond the already like very large and very generous main cast that they have that sort of like rounds out some of the smaller series and stuff and yeah it's really fucking fun it's really fun and I think there's just an attention to detail on it that I appreciate so much like and again I've not played I don't know nearly as many of these series as you I know a lot of them by reputation like I know Ichigo I know Naruto I haven't seen those series all the way through or anything but I know them well enough like if I want to play with Ichigo I still think it's cool Yeah. but I'll say this like as a let's just say as a Dragon Ball fan because this is both our favorite series in that game yeah yeah that is the best version of Goku, Vegeta, and Freeze I've ever played in a fighting game. Hands sure, down, yeah, easy, yeah. no con- no question. And I think if I were a big fan of, you know, One Piece or something, I would probably say that about Luffy and people like that, too. Yeah, I can I, say as, like, a big fan of Bleach and, like, never having... I know there are Bleach games, but it's pretty old because the series is not super popular right now. That, like, I've never played a Bleach game. And so it's, like, it was something that I kind of... It's been a long time since I saw it. Kind of for, forgotten how much I like that series, and specifically, I really like Ichigo as a main character a lot more than like Luffy or Naruto, who are a little more kind of like bland and like one note characters to me. Right. That Ichigo is a little more interesting and dynamic, and I was like, oh yeah, I really love this character. Like he's fucking really cool, and like all the characters are really well re- represented as like a fighting character in the game. Like the way they use their special moves. And, like, a lot of the characters have, like, special power-ups and stuff that, like, if you, like, build up your stamina gauge enough, like, Ichigo will go into, like, his hollow mask form and stuff that will alter some of his moves. Like, a lot of the characters are distinct in really interesting ways and really creative ways. Just in, like, you know, like, the Naruto characters sprint slightly differently than any of the other characters. It kind of represents the way that their show is animated. That sort of changes the way you have to play and stuff like that. Like, there's a... Like I said, there's a lot of attention to detail... And a lot of like really specific elements of the game, just in how the characters play, that's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. But like, just I just feel like each character feels so distinct. They have different weights. Yeah. They have different attacks. Just like Frieza in particular was one where I played. Like I've never seen a Frieza done this well because it's just I feel like I am Frieza with the different yeah. attacks I can do with the way where you say Nakao just yeah. digs into that dialogue and the laugh and everything. Mm-hmm. It's just it's it's a game that just. I don't play it for long periods of time or anything. Yeah, yeah. But I pick it up, I play it, and I just feel it's fun. It's joy. It's yeah, yeah. If yeah. you like these, you don't have to like a lot of the series to get something out of it. If you like a couple of the series in there, it's totally worth it. I think. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, just most of the major series have like two or three characters. It's yeah. not necessarily just the protagonist. Like usually, there's like a protagonist and the main villain. Right. From each of the series, with like the bigger ones having like one or two other people, maybe. Absolutely, and. 
Yeah, I might have to... I've been thinking about getting the English version for Vita, and now having heard you talk about it, I kind of... I might... If it comes on sale, I'll definitely do that. Yeah. And and just because I'd like to go through that story mode yeah. and stuff. And it's definitely... So. It's a game that's, like, really fully featured, too. Like, there's a bunch of different modes. Like, I barely touched... There's, like, this victory road mode that seems kind of cool. Right. That, like, it's kind of, like, gives you specific challenges and stuff. There's I've an done some of that. Mode. There's obviously, like, just, like, multiplayer battle and stuff like that. Have you played any split screen on it? No. This, I don't know if they changed it for the English version. That game has the weirdest split screen I've ever seen, though. Mm-hmm. If you do two people, what it does is it splits the screen in half vertically, but it doesn't do the thing where it, like, just renders it as a vertical strip and you're playing it. It still renders it in two 16 by 9 boxes, but what? if you take two 16 by 9 boxes and put them, ver- like, horizontally on a screen together, yeah. they're really small. Yeah. So it's two 16 by 9 boxes and then these, like, you know, fun cartoon borders around them, but that's how it does it. That's fucking crazy. It's, it's almost really kind of like bizarre. what like Halo Three did, where like depending on how many yeah. screen people you had, it would change the aspect ratio. But this is even smaller like, than that. Bars. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's crazy. weird. I <laughs> the other cool feature that game had in Japan, at least I don't know if they kept it for this one, is you could bring in music that was on your system. And yeah, you could... I don't think you can do that on the PS4 version. Well, the PS4 doesn't. You can't put music on your PS4, can you? You can now. They yeah, have added yeah, that. Okay. Yeah, with like USB, you can. Okay. Well, on the PS3, at least, which is where I have the Japanese version, um, you could do that. And so I just imported a bunch of... You know, like, I got Hedgehala in there, and I was able to sure, put yeah. that on a fight, and that was fun. Yeah, because you so. can when you, like, go into, like, the, the arcade modes and stuff like that. You can't do it in the story mode for obvious reasons. But you can alter, like, on, like, specific stages. You can alter, like, the what the stage music is, and then you can alter what the burst music is. Yes, and the which, burst... That's what I would yeah, do. Yeah, because that's basically when, like, you get, like, you fill up your burst meter... And then you, like, in PS4, you, like, push in on the right stick. And then if your, like, partner does it, it's, like, around the same time, you go into your burst mode, which is when you can use your ultimate attack. And when you go into burst mode, it, like, zooms in on your characters all standing in a circle, like, doing, like, like a anime power-up pose. Yeah, and then, like, your burst music kicks in. It's pretty good. Nice. Well, you know what? While we're on the subject of Dragon Ball... All right. I got two things oh, yeah. to go on. So one smaller thing is, speaking of games... They just released the demo for the 3DS in the U.S. of Extreme Butoden, which is the yeah. new Dragon Ball Z game coming out in October here. It came out in Japan back in March. It sounds like it was pretty good, um, but there were indications from when it came out that it would get a release here, which is actually rare. Portable Dragon Ball yeah. games have not gotten releases in the U.S. for years now. So this is pretty cool. Um, but anyway, it's a 2D fighting game, you know, side view kind of yeah. thing. And... I am loving that demo so much that I'm mad I got to play it this early because I have to wait until October 20th to play the ah, fucking game. Yeah. I'm angry about it. Like, if you, it's made by Arc System Works, and the last Dragon Ball game they did is they did Supersonic Warriors 1 for the GBA and 2 for the DS. And Supersonic Warriors 2 for the DS, which is really old now. That's one of my favorite Dragon Ball fighting games. It's just, it's really fast, it's really fluid, it's got this great kind of almost hand-drawn cartoon art style. Yeah. It's easy to pick up but kind of it has a depth to it and this new one Extreme Butoden even more because um, yeah, Arc is the company that makes the Persona 4 Arena games they oh, cool. also make like uh, Guilty Gear and Blaze Blue is the stuff nice. they're most famous for yeah and so you know like I do like fighting games I'm not super into the heavily technical ones like Street Fighter sure. but I do enjoy fighting games yeah. and I enjoy the side view ones I don't like 3D ones like the recent Dragon Ball games like 
I was. I mean, to be fair, like calling like the. Th- 3D Dragon Ball games, like fighting games. Yeah, they're not very good. Yeah, a bit of a stretch. But I'll, I will say this: like when Xeno first came out this year, I was really excited for it. I know you liked that game. Yeah. I I really didn't. I couldn't. I liked everything around the fighting, but the actual fighting system, I really hated. Yeah, I don't think the fighting system is great, especially because like at a certain point, once you, you unlock Super Saiyan, it's like the entire yeah. game just becomes Super Saiyan to use special attacks. Because all I want out of a Dragon Ball fighting game is a nice, you know, traditional kind of 2D fighter with a good selection of characters and a good amount of depth and a good use of the license. And sure. this is exactly what I want. The demo only has, you know, four playable characters, but the way the game is done is you have your playable character set, which is actually pretty small. I think the roster is only 25 characters total, which is kind of focused for a Dragon Ball game. Yes. And But then they've got about 100 Z assist characters. Uh-huh. And this is kind of like, it's kind of like Marvel vs. Capcom or something like sure, that, where yeah. you pick, you make a team and you pick like, you can do, actually arrange it however you want. But I think ideally you would do two main fighters and then two Z assist characters. And on the touch screen, when you want to use a Z assist character, you click on their picture. That's nice and big, so you can just do it with sure, your thumb. Yeah. And so, like, if you have Great Siaman, he will come in and do an attack. Or if you have Tao Pai Pai, he'll come down. Nice. He'll come down with the giant, like, rod he rides on in that one part of the series Fuck and just yeah. hit them. Or if you do, uh. Fuck yeah, Tao Pai Pai. Or you can do the turtle and he'll come in <laughs> and crawl under them and stop the enemy from moving. Like, I wonder what like the deepest cut of a Zeus's character they have. Like the most specific. It's, there's I I've, I've I forget. I looked at the roster and I'd heard about this and like I you know listened to a podcast review of it and it sounds like there's a lot of them and it sounds like fun. So yeah, and some of those Zeus and, and some of those Zeus's characters you might want to fight as, but I honestly think at the end of the day it's a better use of those characters yeah. because. I my favorite Dragon Ball character is Mr. Satan. I love Mr. Satan. I don't need to fight as Mr. Satan. Isn't how in like every single Dragon Ball game that if you fight him, he has a fucking jetpack. Yeah, it makes sort of solve the problem of the fact that hey, he can't fight. (laughs) I'm honestly much happier with this where he's a Z assist and I put him in there and he comes in and does something fun. Yeah, that's cool. So anyway, I'm I'm loving Extreme Butota and the demo so much that I'm really sad where I keep booting it up and I've. I've played it out so much because it's only got the four characters, yeah. I think ten Z assists, and like five stages. Who are the four characters they have? Uh, it's Goku, Gohan, Vegeta, and Majin Buu, which mm. is actually a good variety because that's the one yeah. thing that's good is because it's got a small main roster, they all fight very uniquely. Yeah. And it, that's just part of the fun. Like Majin Buu is big and heavy, but he can like stretch himself. And then obviously Gohan is really fast and you can do this thing where you jump in the air and do the like kick and stuff. But there's all this stuff, like, there's so much good attention to detail, like, stuff that they've taken right from the anime, where, like, when Vegeta goes to use the, the Big Bang move, yeah. or the Final Flash, he does the exact, like, hand motion and move around and facial expression he does in that episode of the series. Nice. So just things like that that they've gotten perfect. Um, and I'm excited to see how they work in, you know, more stuff. Some of the stuff from uh, Resurrection F, the new movie, is in there. Uh, not yet, but I know it will be. Like, you can play, play as the new Blue Hair Goku yeah, which will be fun when when the full game comes out. But that comes out in October. I'm so psyched for it. And I had left all my DS cartridges up here at the apartment, which I'm, I've been down in Golden for a couple days. So I'm going to go grab Supersonic Warriors Two and oh, play right. that a little bit more, so I can uh, can just get that fixed because right. it's it's a different kind of game, but it's that's a good one too, and that I can still play. So, but speaking of Dragon Ball, yes, bigger news. So last over the last week, Funimation did their theatrical run of Dragon Ball Z Resurrection F, which is the new movie. It took them a long time to get the previous movie, Battle of Gods, over here because of issues with Fox, which holds the international rights. Fucking Dragon Ball Evolution. Fucking shit up for everybody. 
Fuck years after that piece of shit landed in our laps, yeah. yep. still make like ruining our day. Yep. So they held Battle of Gods back forever because you know Funimation would do it immediately if they could. Yeah. Because that's that's their bread and butter. Yeah. And those people really love the series too. So anyway, uh, but Battle of Gods did finally come out here last summer. Did phenomenally in just a tiny theatrical release, and then it was like uh, Fox was like, oh. I guess we shouldn't hold this up anymore. Yeah. So Resurrection F got a nice speedy release here. It only came out in Japan back in March, so very quick turnaround. Yeah. Um, honestly, that's the time you need for dubbing and things like mm-hmm. that. So anyway, it came out, had a run in August, and when we got back from Austin, uh, my brother and I got to go check that out at the Draft House here. And that was, for one, that was so cool to see Dragon Ball Z on a screen that big and that good of quality. Because when I saw Battle of Gods, I had seen it at the Belmar Cinemark here in Denver, and they just had like a satellite projection of it, uh-huh. and it looked like a shitty video stream. It was awful. It, it like it was fun because of the crowd, sure, yeah. and everyone was having fun with the movie. But it looked like I could have put in a DVD, and it would look better. You know, it it was terrible. But here, like at the draft, I had a nice like 4K projection of it. It looked really good, and that's a really good Dragon Ball movie. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to see it. It's so really until it comes out on home yeah, video release. Should come out in October, um, and. It's it's really fun. Like I think there's been a lot of people online who are pissed off at it because that's what people online do. Yeah, but, like because I don't like Dragon Ball has a very large fan base over yes. here, so it's like everyone wants. And Dragon Ball is also a like really diverse sort of franchise in terms of like the things that it does. Yeah. So I feel like everyone has something else that they want Dragon Ball to do, and so it's like either you're like, yay, Battle of Gods, and like all like this fun like the character stuff, and it's all funny and goofy, and then it's yeah. like, oh, what Resurrection of F is only fighting. Like it's Dragon Ball does all this stuff right, and and here's the thing. Like I've heard it described this way, and I totally agree. It's Dragon Resurrection F is like one of the original thirteen Toei DBZ movies, but done really well because it's written by the man himself, Akira Toriyama. He wrote it beginning to end, um, and it's got great production values. So, you know, those original thirteen DBZ movies were very hit and miss. Some of them, yes. some of them are a lot of fun, and some of them are interminable. You know, some of them are bio-broly. Yes, which is illegal by itself. Yeah. But, you know, I think what characterizes those 13 is that they're not really high stakes. It's There's a villain comes in, they fight him, they beat yeah, him. And, the and they're all just, I mean, it's basically like a filler episode turned into a movie. Yes. A filler arc turned into a movie in the sense that it's like, we have, we have a villain who's basically a carbon copy of one of the other villains from the franchise. Probably the most recently popular one. And then they, the transformation that they use, like the events that transpire to defeat the villain, is basically the carbon copy of like the thing, last thing that just happened. You know, right? It's basically every one of those movies is just that. But I will say, you know, the big thing missing from those is I do think the authorial flair of Akira Toriyama because he has such a voice, and that's why the filler often isn't as good yeah. either because that voice is missing. But that voice, as it was in Battle of Gods, is here so strong. There are so many fun things about it. And even when it gets into fighting, and this is a much more fighting-heavy movie than Battle of Gods was, it's well done, and it's smartly done, and it's done with a good eye for character development. And I think the movie resolves a little too quickly. It's got a little too much of a deus ex machina ending. And What? Dragon Ball Z having a deus ex machina ending? That never happened. And part of that is just comparison, because Battle of Gods has such an interesting ending. And yeah, it's, yeah. It's such a, a diversion for the series. Mm-hmm. Or divergence for the series. Um... But I also think, like, the main difference I would say, just if we're going to complain about something, is that I thought Battle of Gods was unusually thematically focused for a Dragon Ball kind of yeah. thing. Because I think the arcs can be, but but often, you know, just the one-shot movies or episodes sometimes, they're just for fun or something. Yeah. But I thought that one had a really actually good character arc for Goku about 
humility, basically. Yeah. And and who Goku is and why he fights and why he does these things. And it was it was a very clear authorial, you know, reclaiming of that character. Yeah, and like like in opening of the door for like things to do with that franchise in the yes. future in terms of like we're now like moving forward with like not just Goku but like Vegeta also had like yeah. a really remarkable character arc and like moving forward with the franchise in that sense yes. this is what, really what Battle of Gods felt like to me and while Resurrection F makes really good use of capitalizing on the things that were set up in that film like having Beerus and Whis in there and like having Vegeta and Goku kind of in a slightly new place in their yeah. friendship because of things that have happened and and just their own pursuit for power and that sort of thing I do think it misses whatever that thematic link is. There's something introduced in the movie thematically about Goku and Vegeta's respective faults and the ways they could overcome them by working together. And that never really pays off. Like, I think the movie is pointing towards a good thematic revelation for its whole time, and then you get to the last five minutes, and it kind of ignores it. It's like the movie didn't quite know what it was about. Sure, yeah. But... It's still so much fun. Like, the, one of the best things is if you read the manga Toriyama did the same year Battle of Gods came out, which is like three years ago now, uh, Jocko the Galactic Patrolman, Jocko is in this movie, and it's his first nice. time being animated, and he's so fun, and Toriyama has so much fun using that character and just sliding him into this existing universe. It's, it's great, and, and there's a lot of stuff where, like, um, this has a smaller supporting cast than Battle of Gods did. He's clearly very selective about we don't have time for everyone this time. Yeah. So, but like you know, I think Piccolo and and Tenshin Han and uh, Master Roshi and Kuririn are all in there, and uh, so is Jocko. And they get to kind of do the first round of fighting with Frieza's forces, and it's right, one yeah. of the best sequences they've ever done of, of getting to showcase people who aren't Goku and Vegeta. Yeah. Like Tenshin Han's like, I get to do something. The last yep. time I did something this series was when I hit. Sell with my fucking tribeam or whatever. Yep. Like, so it's been years since Tenshinhan did anything useful. Yep, and it's a really good use of Frieza because Frieza is really well done in here. He's actually kind of interesting, um, more than I would have thought a resurrected villain would sure, be. Yeah, and it's just it's a lot of fun. And so I have not seen the Japanese version yet, obviously, because this was just the dub. But this was a really good dub too. Like I think I, when Battle of Gods came out here, I said, you know, I was honestly kind of taken aback by just how good the dub was for that movie, and building on what they did in Kai, but taking that even further. I think. Yeah. And with this one, it's another step where I think they just keep getting better at this. And, and they with, have the Kai freezing dude, right? That's what he's, I was going to say. That's that's good. the main reason this is so good because Chris Ayers, who plays Frieza in America now, he is fantastic, he's and so he good. he has so much fun in this movie with that part, and I think. Sean Schemmel and Chris Sabat as Goku and Vegeta play off him so well in this movie. And it's just, it's a blast. Like, and I, I never, because Frieza was like one of the worst voices in the original dub of the series. Yeah. I never thought I would great. enjoy going to see English Frieza in a theater. But no, they get him. And a part of it is actually, it's not just the voice, it's the writing. And I actually heard an interview with Chris Sabat where he talked about this, that they didn't even really understand Frieza when they first tried to dub the series. Yes, yeah. And they just wrote him wrong. He said, and they, he admitted that. Like, we didn't get how he was so kind of eloquent in how he talked. And now they, they get the writing so perfect. And I could imagine every one of these lines coming out of Ryusei Nakao's mouth, too. Yeah. But it's, it's one of the few cases where, where I can say the Japanese voice, and that is a legendary Japanese voice yeah. of Ryusei Nakao's Frieza is just iconic. And the English one kind of goes toe-to-toe with it. And that's pretty amazing at this point to have that. Yeah, yeah. Like, because I watched Kai around when that came out. And, like, that, like... Because even... Because they also, with Kai, they they adjusted the writing of the characters well. Yes. To fit, like, their, the new performance. And, yeah, like, they nailed Frieza in English. Like, they did. It was really good. I also have to give props to the new Bulma. Because Bulma has some fun stuff in this movie. 
And it's her first real big showcase because Bulma's not big in Z, so it, the yeah, Kai recast true. almost didn't matter. It would be better if they redid the original Dragon Ball dub and we could have her there because sure, that's where yeah. Bulma's a big character. But she has some fun stuff in this, and she's really good. Like she, she's very again, it's very similar to the Japanese voice, but its own thing too. So it was a lot of fun. And the other thing I should say is the animation. It's probably the best Dragon Ball Z has ever looked. The fight scenes in this are incredible. And and I thought the fight scenes in Battle of Gods were great. There's not a ton of them, but I think yeah. they had a good sense of kind of weight and impact to them. Yeah. And this film takes that even further. And there's there's just some fight scenes in here that kind of blew my mind. Like seeing it on the big screen was really kind of revelatory that way. There's also just some beautiful backgrounds. The color schemes are great. And god damn it, I like Goku's new transformation. Does it I make do too, yeah. does it make complete sense? No, it's Dragon Ball. Why are you trying to make sense yeah. out of it? It's like, and at this point, like, if you want to continue doing Dragon Ball, you kind of have to stretch to do new transformations. But you need to do new transformations. Like, you can't... And when you see it in context, it's like, that and Golden Frieza, who I'm sure you've all seen the pictures of, they make more sense in context, because there's a very particular color scheme to the movie that's built around blues, basically, and purples and things like that. And so they look cool within the color scheme of the film. And, And that's fun, so... It just makes you wonder, like... How, where's it going to go in the future? Because obviously this is not stopping now. The Dragon Ball is back. Well, have you seen any of Super yet? No, I haven't. Okay, it's good. Um, I've only watched the first two episodes. There's five now. I need to catch up on it. But they're getting they're just retelling Battle yeah, of Gods yeah, and yeah. then Resurrection F. And it'll be interesting to see how they do those because those movies clearly had a, a healthy budget behind them. Yes, and, and I've like I have not watched any of the episodes, but from some of the places on the internet I go, I've seen some screenshots. That people yeah. have taken of like maybe when the animation quality is not at its highest, yeah. Which is maybe it's it looks like it get pretty bad. Like I don't know about like the context in the middle of the episode. People might I, be making like a mountain out of a molehill, but I think people are making a mountain out of a molehill because one, this is just how anime looks. All anime has up days and down days. It's done on a weekly schedule. Yeah. It's it's super hectic and frantic. It's how it works. If you go back and look at the original Dragon Ball Z, good god, there are awful looking episodes. Sure, yeah, there just are, and in the middle of great arcs too. You can go from like the, I believe, and this was really funny when they did it in Kai, the first of the episodes where Trunks confronts Frieza is one of their best animation days. Yeah. And the subsequent one is one of their worst. And then when you stitch that together in Kai, it was really oh, sure. jarring. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, I thought Super actually looked above par for an anime in this day and age. Of that sure. kind of thing. Yeah, well, I think, because you said you only saw the first two episodes. Like, yeah. I think the most of the stuff that I have seen was like from, like I want to say, episode four or five. Yeah. Like, there was a specific fight seen... with Beerus yeah. that, like, some of the screenshots... Were pretty spectacularly bad. Like well, again, yeah. like yeah, like the context is I, important. And I had seen those screenshots too. I'll again, I'll wait until I see the episodes. But I'll say it it had its good qualities where I expected there to be good qualities in the animation, and it had its bad qualities where I would expect them. The fighting so far is kind of slow and janky, and that's how, frankly, a lot of anime fighting looks on TV. And sure, back yeah. in the original DBZ, sometimes too. I'm sure when we get to the actual like Super Saiyan God Goku fight, they will have saved up, you know, some time to do that justice. Yeah. Because that's how it's usually done. But we'll yeah. see. It's worth watching. It's fun. Um, the second episode, Vegeta takes his family on a trip to an amusement park. It's it's, it's a masterpiece. Nice. Yes. Just a, just a true masterpiece. Yeah. I find like their decision to like make the beginning of this new Dragon Ball series to adapt like the movies basically into the show kind it's of weird. puzzling. Yeah. And I'll wait to see because maybe they'll do it really well and it'll be fun. But yeah, and they're doing them differently too. Like in Super Bulma's birthday party happens on a cruise ship. Hmm. Not at Capsule Core, which would change a lot of things, obviously. Yeah. So, we'll see. I, I agree. I mean, it's the only time where I've ever actually gotten annoyed about Dragon Ball canon. Because, as I've said before, if you're worried about Dragon Ball canon, 
They destroyed the moon twice. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, this is a lot. Of, they they did but, a lot of things twice. But it is a weird thing now where you have two movies yeah. done by Toriyama that you would think of as part of the larger quote-unquote canon, for lack of a better term, and then you have an alternate version that's going to go beyond with the story. Yeah. And it's like, well, wait, which one? That's where it gets head-scratching. Yeah, that's yeah, which is kind of like why it's like it's... Like I'm, I'm going to watch Dragon Ball Super at some point. I just yeah. like want enough of it to accumulate that I because I don't want to watch an anime like week by week because right. I never managed to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's like, but some of my enthusiasm for it is definitely sapped by the idea of like, well, I don't just want to watch like the movie story done in a TV format. It's because like the movie was the movie, and I really enjoyed the movie. Yeah, I don't like. I would. I, I want to see where they're heading in the future with these characters. I don't want to see like what they already did with them done again in another format. It's, yeah, it's kind of silly. Well, I just talked about a movie, Sean. So why don't we All talk right. about another movie? All right. Uh, the only movie I think we've both seen on my list is Ant Man. Yeah. What do you think of Ant Man? We always talk about Marvel movies. This was kind of a big question mark this year um, because the trailers weren't very good. I think we both agreed, and and we yeah. were. Sh- and I think a lot of people were not sure how's this going to do. You know, Ant Man's maybe not like the traditionally most interesting character that yeah. Marvel has on top of it. But with that in mind, what did you think of the film? I liked it. Yeah, like I don't think it's not like one of the best Marvel movies ever. Like it's not on par with like a Captain America two or a Guardians of the Galaxy kind of thing. But I think like it was a solid Marvel movie. Like there wasn't anything in it that I was like, like you know, like some of the Marvel movies, like Iron Man three in particular. There's like some things that they do with that movie that I really disliked. Even if a lot of the movie I thought was really well done with Ant Man, it's like I guess I would say it's like a very inoffensive superhero movie. Like and and it's got some moments that are really good. I think I like I like that they made it basically. Kind of what Marvel has been doing in general with a lot of their movies, which is sort of like making it a superhero movie tied with another genre, like the way that Captain America 2 was like a superhero movie tied with like a political thriller. And this is a superhero movie tied with a heist movie. And I thought like that aspect of the movie was really well done and there's like a lot of moments that I really enjoyed, but nothing about it like really shined in a way that was like, oh, this is amazing. I would mostly agree with that. I think I might have liked it more than you. Because um, I really enjoyed it, and I was kind of taken aback by how much I enjoyed parts of it. I agree in total. It's not. It's like it's not so substantial that it feels like yeah. revelatory. But I kind of liked that it wasn't because sure, the last yeah. couple of Marvel movies have been so big, and I think Age of Ultron really did suffer from being as big as it tried yeah, to yeah. be. Definitely. And I liked Age of Ultron, but yeah. it had problems. And I liked this more than Age of Ultron. Definitely, this was my favorite of the two Marvel movies this year. And part of that was it just felt very different from a lot of other Marvel stuff. It has a lot of the main, you know, Marvel things to it where you have the character crossovers and you have the general sense of tone and the kind of lightness to it. But then I think, like, for instance, visually, this is one of my favorite Marvel movies because I think the way Peyton Reed and Edgar Wright, who isn't credited for it but still did all the previs on it, did all the stuff with Ant-Man himself as he, when he goes small and how those sequences are done... I thought that was kind of jaw-dropping. I thought it was so well choreographed. The effects were so good. Because how they shot it was all with what they called their macro unit, where they would get special cameras and just shoot things small. So none of that's CGI. That's all... Oh, yeah. Those are all... He's, it's, he, Paul Rudd would be against a green screen, but they would then composite in real stuff. And it looked really cool. It was kind of like the action movie version of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Sure, yeah. And I think it was just done really well. And I kind of like the audacity of... We're going to do our big final sequence in his daughter's bedroom. Yeah. And it actually became pretty exciting. And yeah, lots... yeah, like, that's definitely true, that they they made really good use of Ant-Man's power. Specifically, yeah, yeah the, the shrinking and growing stuff was really well done. That stuff, I thought the control of the ants yeah. was great, and I thought the core relationships of the film between uh, Scott Lang, Hank Pym, and Evangeline Lilly. Yeah. What's her name? 
Janet Van Dyne? Hope Van no, Dyne? No, no, that Hope. Hope, Hope. Yeah, Janet's the Jan, mother. Janet's okay. the mom, yeah. Janet's the mom, we're going to meet in Ant-Man too. clearly. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Um, Battle of the Wasps. Yes. Uh, but I thought that was such a great core relationship. I thought Michael Douglas fit into this world surprisingly well. I love that we have Hank Pym in there now. And he's, he's like this elder statesman yeah. of the Marvel Universe. That's great. Also, that fucking opening sequence where they, like, digitally de-aged him. Holy crap. That was, like... Because, you know, obviously that technology has been sort of, like, kicking around a while in movies with, like, the, the creepy Jeff Bridges in Tron 2 and stuff. Yeah, but that's creepy. This looked good. Yeah, this was really good. Like, to the point where I didn't realize until, like, after I was, like, saw some articles about it talking about the effects. I was like, Fuck! That was, like, all digital. Like, I thought they just did an incredible makeup job. Like, I could not yeah. tell that they digitally de-aged it. Well, like, because it was fucking it's, really good. It's not just that it's young Michael Douglas. It's that it's Michael Douglas at an age where he did his most famous work. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it looks like Michael Douglas from, like, the movies that you've seen Michael Douglas Wall in, Street you know? was yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah. Specifically, yeah. And it's, and I love that they brought back uh, John Slattery as uh, Tony Stark's dad. Yeah, yeah. What's his name? Uh-huh. Richard Richard Stark. Yeah, I want to say Richard Stark, and I for some reason I thought that was wrong. Nope. Anyway, um, so yeah, that that was just that was a cool scene. I, I like the characters. I the villain sucked, but you know that's a Marvel yeah, that's thing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they need they need to figure that out. To be fair, I don't like. I cannot. I literally cannot name a single Ant Man villain. Yeah. I don't know. I don't like. I mean, I've always thought the Yellow Jacket was just another Ant Man identity. I don't know okay. if that's actually a villain from the comic or they just made him up. Well, and here's the thing. I think in theory that was a good kind of idea they had floating around for that villain it's very similar to Iron Man 1 but I think it works I just think they pushed for certain character development things that aren't earned like his relationship with Hank Pym and it's like I don't know anything about your relationship with Hank Pym so why should I care about this you're just a faceless villain and it's too bad when they cast someone like Corey Stoll who's a really good actor for a very thankless role like that Yeah, it's also tricky with Ant-Man that like it makes me wonder what they're going to do if they're going to make like with sequels for Ant-Man like how do you have Ant-Man fight someone who doesn't have the same powers as Ant-Man, you know? Yeah. Because it's like, that seems like that would be really tricky. Well, I like the implication of how we're going to see him used in Civil War. Yeah. Where yeah. he'll be their infiltrator guy mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. But yeah, I overall, I did like that this was smaller scale Marvel. I think, again, visually, it's one of the more interesting movies they've done. Not just with the Ant stuff, but I just thought overall it was well shot. Um, it just had a nice sense of tone. It was, it was legitimately funny. I thought there was a lot yeah, of good yeah, funny definitely. stuff. And, you know, I think Paul Rudd fits into this universe really well. Everyone did. Evangeline yeah. Lilly is great, and I hope she gets more of her own headlining stuff in the future. Yeah, yeah. Because it was kind of nice. It's like, oh, thank God, you're finally in a movie that's using your talents, and it's not The Hobbit. Yeah. You know, because, boy, she was wasted in that. It's yeah. too bad, because she's trying so hard in The Hobbit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I want to like Tariel so bad, but they gave her such a bad story. Yeah. So, this was good. This was better. And, um... Yeah, so Ant-Man was a good superhero movie. Yes. Then, wanna... like, I, I was just wanting, you know, shout out to fucking Falcon in, in the middle yep. act. That was a really awesome scene. And it was like, it made up for the fact that they didn't put Falcon in the climax for if fucking Age of Ultron. was yeah. like, where is Falcon? He was in the movie earlier. What the fuck is, is he doing? It's like, here, here he is. Like, yep. we've, got, we've got a good little Falcon action scene. And I thought that was one of the better things Marvel's ever done in terms of a comic book-esque crossover yeah. thing. Where Falcon, it's like on the in a comic, Falcon would just walk on the page, and that's yeah, easy because exactly. anyone can draw yeah. him. And it's the same here in the movie; he's just there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like it fits into the story. It's like not a distraction. Like it's a really good because also there's nothing else in the movie that sort of like would be able to ha- like set up a middle movie action scene that you just really need for the pacing of a movie like yeah. this. So it's like it's a really good way to just like 
fuck it, we can just do this. Like, we can just use this character really quick, yeah. have, like, this nice little action scene, and then move on. Yeah. So can we make fun of a superhero movie for a minute? Sure. I didn't see Fantastic Four. Yeah, neither nobody, did I. Nobody saw Fantastic Four, but can we make fun of it for a second? Sure, yeah. When, when was the last time a movie this big bombed that hard? I That's, like, what, like, did it bomb worse than John Carter? Yes. Because yeah. John Carter made, like... That's the thing. So the big bombs recently have been Disney bombs with like John Carter and the Lone Ranger but the thing people forget about those movies is those movies actually did pretty big money it's just that their Their budgets were so out of control no Fantastic Four opened at like 23 million dollars that's that is a bomb we haven't seen on a scale like this in a while and like it's it's sad when your like big budget superhero movie is like in the same area of like your graph as like the limited release Dragon Ball Z movie that came out like in like two theaters for like one day. That's you know? no joke. Yeah. Resurrection F did about that much money. I yeah. mean, yeah, it's crazy. And I just think it's kind of funny because I don't think we're on the verge of the superhero bubble bursting or anything, but I do think it shows that if you don't do it right, people aren't going to care. Yeah, if and you're just making a movie to try to keep your the rights to the characters, yeah. people are maybe going to tell. And I think we've seen a lot of evidence of this. Like, there's the obvious examples like Green Lantern. But then there's the less obvious ones like Amazing Spider-Man 2, which made a shit ton of money, but it was just so bad. and did it just, just killed everything about that franchise. And, and created such bad audience, you know, will towards it. It yeah. robbed all goodwill towards that character, which is dangerous. And I just think it's interesting, because everything I've heard is the movie is awful, too. And I've looked at the plot, and it's like, it's basically one long first act it's yeah. all origin story, and there's one, like, two-minute fight with Doom at the end. Yeah, like, everything I've seen about, like, what the movie is makes it seem like the most unappealing fucking superhero movie yeah. ever. And it's just like... And you're right. It's like when you make a movie to keep the rights rather than making a movie for any artistic purpose. And I do think the saddest thing about it is that this probably permanently salts the earth for the Fantastic Four for a while yeah. on film. Because Fox is still saying they're going to make that sequel. They're not going to make that sequel. But they're going to do whatever they can to keep the rights because this is... It's this and X-Men, and if they get rid of this, all they got left is X-Men, and X-Men yeah. is probably... Seems like X-Men's, like, getting ready to end, like, I can't yeah. imagine that can continue forever. Yeah, you know, I... Like, Hugh Jackman seems pretty serious about, like, he's going to stop playing Wolverine. Like, right. Like, he's been saying that for a while, but, like, he's... This time, I really believe that, like, this is kind of his last round for these movies. And once you don't have fucking Hugh Jackman playing Wolverine, how long can that franchise really last? Well, yeah, I mean, Apocalypse is actually going to be a big test, I think, because it'll be... Because, like, First Class did decently, but that's the only big movie without Hugh Jackman that there's been a test for. He's in all the other ones prominently. So, like, Days of Future Past, he's front and center on the poster with Jennifer Lawrence, so... You know, I don't. I don't know how long. I if Apocalypse does really well, maybe this thing has. Yeah, legs. and if they're able to like set up some like the new characters as yeah, like, new old characters, I guess right. is like being able to carry that franchise forward. It's just it's it's in a weird situation. So while I would love to see Marvel do some nice Fantastic Four stuff because I didn't see this movie, no skin off my back. <laughs> yeah, but you Marvel can't just turn around and do another Fantastic Four movie now. Yeah, even because Spider Man is even a different thing. Because Spider Man is much more inherently popular. Yeah, in, it, the, it's a much easier character to use than the yeah. Fantastic Four. Here's my favorite thing about the new Fantastic Four movie, though. Yeah, is that it's made everyone go back and look at the original Fantastic Four movies and be like, you know what, they weren't that bad. And you know what, you're right, they weren't that bad. They they're they're not good, but they had the right tone. They yeah. had their heart in the right place. They were done ineptly. Some of the casting was off, although some of the casting was very good. I will contend yeah. that's where we met Chris Evans. Come yeah. On. And, you know, but I think it's just, it's kind of funny that you can go from that, which was the right kind of movie done wrong, to this, which is the wrong kind of movie done poorly. Yeah. 
I still don't get the instinct to do dark, dour, fantastic four. Yeah, it's like it is like the worst fucking Marvel characters to do that for. Like you could do dark, dour Spider Man better than you could do dark, dour fucking Fantastic Four, as evidenced by the first Amazing Spider Man, yeah. which wasn't that bad. Yeah, exactly. Like like doing like super serious <laughs> like. I'm not 100% sure if this is true because I feel like people would talk about it more, but I just saw like a couple of like tweets and comments saying that in the movie, the catchphrase for things, clobber in time, comes from him being abused by his older yes, brother. Yes, that happens. It's in like, the first scene of the movie, his brother just like, beats him and says it's clobbering time. I've heard a bunch about as that. Soon, as soon as you do that, as soon as you turn like this character, who's like this really... I mean, obviously like the thing is the most angsty character out of all of them, but he's also the most fun character out of right. the cast. Like, as soon as you turn his fucking catchphrase, which is, it's clobber time, which is supposed to be used for, like, fuck yeah, like, we're gonna have a big awesome action scene. That's what it's clobber time is for. As soon as you turn that into a thing about physical abuse, you fucked up everything about what you were doing. Like, you have just, like, killed this movie the second that that fucking scene was written, like, put ink onto page. It's like, it's done. It's over. What the fuck are you thinking? Like, who... Who are Does you? that? Yeah, let it be like, like even like the Ang Lee Hulk movie never didn't have the fucking gall to like have Hulk Smash come from his dad beating him. You yeah. know, like there's some things that you just don't fucking do. You I know. know. Well, and have you heard the other things they do with the thing in the movie? I mean, isn't he's like turned into like a military weapon? Yeah. Or something, right. Yeah. Well, like the whole plot, like, like it's not... only like an 80 minute movie. And it, it takes 45 minutes, I read, for them to actually become, like, get their powers. Yeah. And then when they do, there's a year time jump where Reed Richards yeah. just runs away and abandons his friends who aren't really his friends. That's the other thing. They have no pre-existing relationships. Yeah, which kind other of than kills... him and Ben, like, I think. Yeah. Because they, they're, like, from what I understand of the plot, they're pulling mostly from Ultimate Fantastic Four. With but them. I've also heard of stuff like Ben and Sue don't have a single dialogue exchange in the whole film. <laughs> stuff like that. Like... It's about family, and they missed that yeah. whole thing. <laughs> like, it, yeah, it would be like Spider Man without Uncle Ben. Like, they just don't. Or get it. it would be like Spider Man without someone like telling him, "With great power comes great responsibility." Right. Like, who would do that? Well, Amazing Spider Man kind of did it, but they also yeah. they had their other version. So at yeah. least they got the message across. The, the, yeah, but, it's like they tried it without actually doing. Yeah, it, it was yeah. bad. But anyway, let's. Can I make fun of one other movie? Sure, go ahead. This one I actually saw. Okay. Terminator Genesis? Uh. <laughs> that was a bomb. I mean, to be fair, that was also a giant bomb, but yeah. it didn't bomb quite as hard as Fantastic Four. Um, and but it the... seems like Terminator movies must be done now, right? Like They have to be. Yeah, yeah. If, with this one bombing, like there's, I can't imagine them trying to bring this okay. back. Let's play one of our favorite games here on the podcast. Okay. Where we try to explain the plot of something incomprehensible. Sure. So I'm going to try to explain the story of Terminator Genesis. Go ahead. All right. John Connor. I'll get you started. John Connor. It starts in the future. John Connor rescues Kyle Reese as like a little kid, which makes the ages all wrong, but whatever. Um, so, and then they become best friends, even though he's like 20 years older than Kyle Reese. So it's really bizarre. And that's even weirder when you consider that he's telling Kyle to go fuck his mother. Yeah. And he met Kyle as like a little kid. Hmm. I don't, that'd be weird. You know. Dude, John Connor is a weird dude. He is a weird know? dude. But anyway, so they're fighting. They're on like the last day. They're going to win the war, and they find the time machine. It's basically just a very rote retelling of the backstory of Terminator Genesis of the Terminator series. Yeah. But then they get there, and as Kyle is getting naked and getting ready to go in the time machine, uh, Doctor Who comes up. It's Matt Smith. And, oh yeah. And he walks. I forgot up. he's in that movie. Yeah, I forgot too because he's in like he has like one line. But anyway, he comes up and he like 
you know, karate chops John Connor, and then Kyle Reese is like, no, and then gets sent into the past, and. Then they do a bunch of recreations. That's of... what they use Matt Smith for? He's in one other scene. Okay. And then... like, it would be great if, like, that's literally all, like, literally, he, like, he's not even introduced as a character or anything. He just walks on screen, karate chops John Connor, and sets, like, the villainous plot in motion. Yep. And it's just Doctor Who. Like, it's just the Doctor. Like, yeah. he just showed up. He's trying to, like, fix all this time bullshit. I will say there's very get clear... his hands dirty. It's very clear he was cast for something bigger, and that's just not in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was that's clearly magic. cut out. But anyway, um... So, yeah, so he goes back in time, and then there's a bunch of recreations of scenes from Terminator 1, like uh, the Terminator going up to Bill Paxton and taking his clothes, but then uh, uh, the old Arnie Terminator comes and kills the young Terminator and stops that. Hasta la vista, baby. I think he maybe does. Anyway. He must at some point in the movie. Oh, he does. Yeah. But anyway, um, then Kyle Reese is being chased through that clothing store by, like in the first movie, but now it's a T-1000 chasing him. And the actor playing the T-1000 is the only guy in this whole movie who kind of gets it, I want to say. Because he's like, that's a good Terminator actor. Like, whoever that guy is, I don't know his name. But I would like to see him as an actual Terminator in something. Anyway, it's kind of like the random Terminators they would have in the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yeah. Like, you're a good Terminator, dude. Yeah, yeah. there, there is a certain quality to an actor yes. that makes them a good Terminator. Yeah, yeah. anyway. But uh, then Sarah Connor comes in with a truck and says, come with me if you want to live. And at that point, I'm just like, oh, what a... And that's when I, you take, like, your 20th shot yeah. in the, like, how many references to, like, dialogue references can we make to old Terminator movies in yeah. this fucking movie? How, how can we, like, in our... Ironically, in our, like, time travel movie, just not be able to escape our own fucking past, you know? Yeah. All right, so Kyle goes with Sarah Connor, but even though she's clearly a badass, she's ripped, she's got the gun, she's got body armor on, he will not trust her to do any of the fighting, and he keeps fucking things up for them because of that. That's annoying. And, and does he keep on like like really pathetically trying to make it with her, just like like hitting on her? He knows he knows he sleeps with her. Like it's his fucking destiny. No, that's the Terminator movie I would make. Is about how Kyle Reese is like a big fucking loser who's like he just really wants to get laid. And he doesn't know how to set it up. I'll talk about their relationship later because it's okay. funny. But anyway, and then also he she's got old Arnie with them, and he, she calls him Pops. And he won't trust her that Pops is a good Terminator either. So he's just... Kyle Reese is a fucking asshole. He doesn't get it. And anyway... That's unfortunate for, like, one of my favorite, like, sort of action movie protagonists ever. Oh, well, let me say this. The other, Then I'll go into this right now. Okay. The actor playing Kyle Reese is Jai Courtney. Jai Courtney I is a, is a is. bad actor who has no, no charisma whatsoever. He was also played John McClane's son in A Good Day to Die Hard. Ah. And he's awful in that. He's awful in this. And it looks like he's trying, but he's just... He's not cut out for this. And it's I the mean, most... Michael Bain is a pretty hard fucking act to follow in Terminator 1. Like, he was really good in that movie. But they didn't even get someone with personality. Like, this is just generic Call of Duty lughead. Uh, and they, it's, I wouldn't even say... Which is like, like the exact opposite of who Kyle Reese is. Yeah, in fact, characterization-wise, he's nothing like Kyle Reese. Like, Kyle Reese is a twitchy ball of neuroses because yeah. he has deep PTSD. There's none of that in this. He's just a generic soldier dude. And the guy playing John Connor is even worse. And that's Jason Clark, who's actually a pretty decent actor. And they're John Connor. He's awful in this anyway but so what happens is let's see so they go back to their home base that Arnie has set up and they kill the T-1000 with like liquid nitrogen or something blah 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 then Hasta la vista baby then it turn, again then it turns out the Terminator and Sarah Connor who she he saved Sarah as a little girl yes and they've created a time machine together 
so they can go into the future. Hold <laughs> wait, 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 wait. How the fuck did they make a time machine? I don't know. I How don't know. How the fuck did Sarah Connor and a fucking T eight hundred make a fucking time machine? There... Shouldn't that be a really goddamn hard thing to do? Yeah, there's techno babble about it. Honestly, I was already kind of tuning out at this like... point. I believe part of the techno babble is that they take the chip out of the other T eight hundred's head, the other Arnold. And they use that to power it. But how they built all the other stuff, I don't Why know. Why would that power a time machine? I don't know. Do they think that the Terminators put their own fucking chips in the time machine before they teleport? That, that's how that's supposed to work? Like, there's one time machine and fucking Skynet makes it. Like, I have to assume the time machine must be really hard to make if you're like, world-conquering AI only manages to make one fucking time machine. In like, all the time it has to make it. With all the resources it has to make it. How the fuck did fucking Sarah Connor and Terminator Man make a goddamn time machine? But here's the bigger question. Why do they need it? Because their That's plan is to go to 97, which is when Skynet's supposed to go online. And this is all by the original context. So apparently T3 and 4... Wait, so they're planning on going to the future with their time machine? Yes, which doesn't make sense because they could just wait. Also, I, I thought... Maybe I'm misremembering like Terminator lore, but I thought their time machines only went backwards. I thought that too. Yeah. Anyway, they're going to go they to... They probably 90- do. They just made it up for this movie. Yeah. Well, they're going to go to 97... And they're going to stop Skynet there. And at this point, I'm already asking, why not just wait and just, like, figure out stuff now when it's easier to do it? And, like, you'll be alive in ten years, hopefully. <laughs> That's a really good just, point. Just hang out and just do it there. They never explain That's why they... That's a really good fucking point. It's because... not like you're going a hundred years in the future. <laughs> no. Like, you can just time travel the normal way, motherfuckers. Just yeah. Wait. Because they... That's the other thing, is that they time travel themselves to, like, a day before it goes online. So there's a time limit? And it's like they almost fail over and over. It's like, what? Who came up with this? And the whole thing is also, Arnie can't travel through time because he's got metal in him. And the time machine can't take that. So he has to just wait. But doesn't he have, like, the organic shit around him that's supposed to, like, allow the Terminators to travel? Oh, that's what it is. It would burn the organic material for some reason. Okay. It doesn't make sense, but... I guess, well, I guess I can just assume they made a really fucking shit-ass time machine. Yeah, okay. It must be what happened. That can only go ten years in the future, which is completely useless in your current situation, and won't even let your, like, most valuable, like, person go. Right. That's the time machine they managed to build. So they go ten years in the future, and they get there, and for some reason it deposits them to- somewhere totally different, like, on a highway, sort of like in the Sarah Connor or like Chronicles. like, into deep space, because they made a shitty time machine that yeah. didn't account for, like, the movement of the Earth. And... When they get there, Arnold has been waiting ten years, and he knows the exact position they're going to get out, but he's stuck in traffic. (laughs) The Terminator is stuck in traffic. And so Sarah and Kyle get arrested, and they're in jail, and then John Connor shows up from the future, and he saves them, and then it turns out he tries to kill them because he's now a nanomachine robot called the T-5000. Did Hideo Kojima write this fucking movie? Oh, oh, Hideo Kojima would have made a much better movie than this. <laughs> sure he would have. Um, Hideo Kojima, at the very least, does interesting stuff. Sure. Let's go with that. This is not... This is but silly. he certainly loves his fucking nanomachines. He does love nanomachines. So anyway, he's a nanomachine robot. And anyway, I forget what happens. They escape John. And then, at some point, they're on a bridge, and there's a shitty action sequence with a bus on a bridge. Is it the Golden Gate Bridge? Yeah, and it's all CGI, mm-hmm. and it looks terrible. Eventually, they decide... They okay. Oh God, this is hard to figure out. So Kyle Reese is having parallel universe flashes to his other self growing up in this split timeline, and in the future, in like right. twenty seventeen or something. 
And so he remembers that there's this program called Genesis, is which is what will become Skynet. And so it's a really convenient name for the program. Yeah. And so they know they have to stop Genesis. Why they couldn't just cut all that out and say it's Skynet, I don't know. But anyway, so they have to... they needed a, like, dumb subtitle for the movie. Right. So they have to go to the Genesis building and bomb it. And they get there. I think there's the whole Golden Gate Bridge chase, all of that. Anyway, they get there. It turns out to be really easy. They just kind of plant the charges. And then they try to blow it up. And then I think that's when Matt Smith reappears as an AI, but it's just animation. And they kind of hear his voice a little bit, but you don't really find out who he is. I think there's a flashback somewhere, though the other scene Matt Smith is in, there's only two, and it's a flashback to when he karate chops John Connor, and then he talks to him and I guess convinces him to be a robot. That's the only other scene Matt Smith's in. So is Matt Smith a good guy or a bad guy? He is Skynet, is the whole thing. He's a robot. He is... Okay. Yeah. He is the Skynet central AI. He is like Cortana for Skynet. So, so, convincing John Connor to be a robot was like a ploy that, like, John Connor should not have done. I, bad thing? I, I'm not sure if John Connor did it willingly or not. They don't really okay. explain. Okay. Anyway, Sarah kills her own son. That's the climax of the movie is they have to kill John Connor. Well, he's a robot. He's not really John Connor anymore. Yeah, but it's kind of fucked up because also there's no... Let's be honest. There's no possible way she could have that same child now. Just by probability, even if she fucks Kyle Reese, Kyle Reese is not going to shoot the exact same you know semen into her that sure. he would have in that other situation. They would have a totally different child. So sure. John Connor is erased in this timeline as far as I'm concerned. Because that's how science works, guys. Yeah. And now it's, you know, the savior of humanity is fucking Gary Connor. Nobody likes that asshole. Yeah. I. They could have a daughter. And then, because of the rules of action movies, she couldn't do anything. And that'd be sad. Sarah Connor Jr. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. Something with the factory. They blow it up. Arnold then becomes a T-1000. <laughs> he falls into a vat of the, like, molten T-1000 lava stuff. And then Sarah and John, Sarah and Kyle run away from the explosion after they kill John and blow up the Genesis factory. And then they're stuck in a bunker. And then T-1000 Arnold comes and breaks them out. And that's the end of the movie where they're all like, well, no, the end of the movie is then T-1000 Arnold takes them to Kyle Reese's child home. So, because where Kyle is now a little kid in this part of the present day. Right. And... Sarah has to tell Kyle a message that older Kyle remembered his parallel self hearing from her, but only happened because he told her to go do it. So it's awful time travel logic. It's like worse than the worst Doctor Who stuff. It's like like if Stephen Moffat like fell and hit his head and wrote a script right. about Terminators. Yeah, only worse. And yeah, so and that's the end of the movie. And then they drive off. And then after the credits, um, the Matt Smith AI reawakens, and they didn't accomplish anything. Well, of course, because. The whole thing about Terminator is that nobody understands in the Terminator universe how time travel works in the Terminator universe, and they don't fucking realize that everything is set in motion, and that you cannot fucking... There is a fate that is beyond what you make for yourself, you fucking idiot. Like, this is like the, the fifth goddamn movie. Yeah. Anyway, and then let's see, what else happens? So, Kyle and Sarah show no chemistry of any sort at any point in the entire movie... Except that she says at one point, you know, you're the father of my son, and he didn't know that somehow. And so he's kind of blindsided by that. But they don't like each other, and then in the last scene they kiss, and it makes no goddamn sense. So at no point in the movie do they do the dirty? No. Ah. There's no fucking. So that's what I'm saying. John Connor is gone. He cannot exist right. in this timeline anymore. Like, presumably, like, maybe they just never even do it. Like, maybe yeah. Kyle Reese just, like, decides, like, you know what, I'm not so into you, Sarah Connor. I'm going to find someone else. I would love it if they did a twist like where this Kyle Reese is gay. Because there's all these other changes happening. And it's just like, 
look, I'd like to, but I'm not into you. You know? Or it's like time travel makes him infertile or something. It's something like, like that, yeah. Ooh, we really fucked up our own plan this time. No, we probably should have tested that first. It's their bad time travel machine, does yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, it is... I can't even whether necessarily say the movie's bad. It's just baffling. Like, there's nothing about it that's even vaguely redeeming, really. It, but it moves... Like, it's it's decently paced. It's not necessarily painful to watch. In fact, it's kind of entertaining because you're trying to figure out what the fuck their idea for this yeah. thing was the whole time. It's just the whole time you're watching, like, the Terminator franchise just, like, crash and burn. In terms of, like, just, like... Where they have gone with that series and, like, the, their just complete inability to evolve it anywhere past where basically, like, Terminator 2 and Terminator 3 were. And, yeah. like, their inability to do anything new and interesting with the franchise and that they're, they're fucking stuck in this crazy goddamn time loop of their own making, unable to escape, like, the, the impact of their own franchise. And like the Jurassic Park movies, they just keep getting worse and worse, I really feel like. Like, each sequel is worse than the last one. Yeah. And I include Terminator 2 in that. I don't like that as much as the first one. Fucking yes, Terminator yes. 1 is by far the best Terminator movie. Absolutely. Anyway, but like, and here's the thing. So I'm not necessarily surprised that this movie ignores Terminator 3 and 4, or the Sarah Connor Chronicles, because of course it was going to do that. Yeah. But it yeah, pretty, would be insane if a new Terminator movie took the TV show into account. But it's pretty obvious that this also ignores Terminator 2, because nothing in Terminator 2 could happen in this universe either. Well, yeah, because, so, I mean, it seems like they did, it's a completely split timeline because they had yeah. the Terminator... Old Terminator is in the past. Did they explain how that happens? No, that's a mystery. That's a, that's the sequel setup at the end of the movie. Oh, is how the fuck did this whole yeah. movie even happen in the first place? Right. That's a great way to leave your movie off. Yeah, that's a good like confident note. It's like, and you want to know how any of this was meant to happen? Wait for our sequel. That's never going to be made. And you know, I think I am at a point where clearly the, whoever's working on these movies cannot figure out how to do a Terminator sequel. But I do think if you wanted to, you could make the franchise extend. Sarah Connor Chronicles is really good. Yes. Terminator Three, I will always defend. I think that's a good action movie. I don't think it's great, but I think it's good. And sure, I think it has its moments. It, it yeah. has it has the best action scenes of the franchise. I will confidently sure, say that because yeah. I don't think James Cameron is that good an action director. I'll agree. Yeah. But there's a there's a truck chase, a fire mm-hmm. truck chase in Three that I think yeah. is amazing. And it's got a good ending, too, that I think you actually could have yeah, picked yeah. up on. Where you just admit that, okay, we never could have stopped this. Yeah. Let's go on. Like, it's the only way... And it's kind of funny that this entire franchise is predicated on ignoring the most beloved chapter, which is T2. Yeah. It may not be our favorite, but it's clearly the most beloved yes, worldwide. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And for all of the sequels, you have to ignore that that movie existed. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you have to undo that movie, because that movie, like, ended mostly with, like, the feeling that, well, we won. Like, yeah. it's... Supposed to be over now, right? But they just keep fucking it over and over again, and I, at this point, I really do hope it's dead because this movie did terribly all over the world, and <sighs> they never should have made any Terminator movies past the first one. Yeah, like, I mean, I'm glad T2 exists. I, like, I like T2, but I just mean in terms of like the franchise as a whole, right? Like, like just like their whole concept of like time travel and all that stuff. Like, Terminator One is by far the most interesting movie, just because it's the only one that feels like it understands what it is, and it doesn't need to, like it, like Terminator never needed to be a franchise. No. Like, it never needed sequels in the first place. Like, even if I do really like T2 as a movie, and I love Terminator: The Sarah Connor Chronicles, like. There's a purity to just having Terminator 1 and ending with, well, the future's probably still fucked. Like, that storm is on the horizon at the end of Terminator 1, and that's where the franchise needs to stop, because it can't sustain... Just the time travel stuff makes the franchise impossible to be a franchise anymore. Like, it's 
just completely fucking paralyzed. And he can't do anything. And the other thing is, there's a reason why the Sarah Connor Chronicles is the best follow-up, and it's because they went with different characters and stuff. Like, yeah, and they they like completely changed the setting because it's like they did with the future or whatever, like abandoned like everything that they were doing, like changed all that shit. Yeah. And then like focused on using the TV format to make John Connor an interesting character that you can see how he develops into who he's supposed to be. Right. Like that's the only way that I can really see doing more Terminator stuff is by doing John Connor really well, but I don't think I think it would be really hard to do that in a movie. Yeah, and all the but that's what I was gonna say is that all the current movies are so obsessed with doing Arnold again and redoing other things, whereas like that show, it's all new Terminators. It's yeah. not like the and the Summer Glau character was fascinating. She's yeah. she's by far the most interesting Terminator in the series. Yeah, Arnold is a fun, you know, cheesy actor, but he's the Terminator isn't a character. Yeah, you yeah, can't like do in that. the first movie, like and it's also one of the reasons why the first movie is the best is because the Terminator is just this ruthless killing machine, yeah. and that's it. You don't have to have like Arnold have to play, even though I do think he does a pretty good job in T two. Like you know, the Terminator character in T two is fundamentally just like less interesting than fucking the Terminator who just goes like fucking rides straight up into a fucking police station just murders like every cop in the place you know yeah. that's my Terminator god damn it absolutely so let me pr- quickly go through this list and just talk about the good movies from this summer alright a couple recommendations the first one's obvious you've all seen it y'all love it Pixar's movie Inside Out it's the best film of the year so far it's one of the I think it's the best movie they've ever done it could be the current pinnacle of American animation. It's it's brilliant. It's a masterpiece. I'm not the first person to say any of that. Sure, yeah. So I don't know if there's much more I can say. The movie made me cry. It made me think about stuff. It was honestly very cathartic. I think it's a, a brilliant, brilliant movie. And I... Between that and Mad Max Fury Road, those are the two movies where I cannot believe either of those movies exist, let alone that they came out within like a month of each other. Right. They're the kinds of things that you just shouldn't ever see in the Hollywood studio system today. And but, also like two... I mean, I haven't seen Inside Out personally, but I assume they are two very different kinds of movies. Very I assume Inside yes. Out is not like the like these personality fragments driving through the desert, like fucking shit up and like no. cool cars. But it is the kind of thing where both of them, I think, run so counter to what mainstream Hollywood is trying to do with movies and what it's trying to push in terms of just basic theme and content. Inside Out has moments that are abstract and experimental, just like Mad Max does, frankly. And it's got a story where the the lesson of Inside Out is it's good to be sad sometimes. I don't, I can't imagine, I, if you had told me that going in, I'm like, how would Hollywood sign off on that? Yeah. That's a weird thing. And Pixar kind of has made a habit of doing that kind of thing. But even then, well, I think... It seems like they've kind of been out of their groove in recent For a couple years now. Yeah. And... You know, but this was definitely this is Pixar all the way through. It's brilliant, and you know, it's it's like I think there's been like I love Wall-E and I love Up and some of those from their like the kind of height of their golden yeah. age there. But I think you can also point to in those movies where they had big ideas and they reached really far. And I don't know if they work a hundred percent. Like, like how the fucking first like thirty minutes or whatever of Wall-E that has no dialogue is like a fucking amazing movie, and then it's like all like. The humans and shit. You're like, oh, this movie is way less interesting than it was before. Well, uh, yeah, and I like Wally all the way through, but I'll be the first to admit too: the first half hour is the best half hour. Yeah, of the like film. It's, that fucking part is so good. And Up, you know, Up is kind of Up is a really great movie, but it's got this weird disjointed thing where the second half is a lot more high comedy than the first half, for instance. So you've got those kind of things that happen too. Um, you know, I would put this in the same realm as like Ratatouille or The Incredibles or. Toy Story 3 is one that really where their bold ideas work all the way through and and it's just it's it's a great movie it's it's 
so thoughtful about the things it does. Because I think we've seen this kind of thing before where filmmakers try to take psychology and psychological concepts and put it into a recognizable cinematic framework. Yeah. And usually it's much more simplified than that. This is not dumbed down. I mean, it's it's accessible. It's not inaccessible. Sure. I saw it twice with full audiences, many of whom were children, and they were raptured by it. You know, they were really into the movie. But it it doesn't necess- it doesn't simplify emotions and it doesn't reduce. I think it's 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 very um, disarming how it does a lot of that stuff. So anyway, great movie. Um, that and Mad Max are just you look at those and it's like this is a good year for film. I don't even care what else came out. Those sure, are yeah, two yeah. classics. Yeah. Um, but two other good movies: uh, Trainwreck, which was written by Amy Schumer, starring Amy Schumer, but directed by Judd Apatow. Uh, my favorite comedy this year so far. Really, really great movie. I think the best movie Judd Apatow himself has made. Uh, the first one he didn't write, and it's just a, it, Amy Schumer. If you like her stuff, and I, I love her TV show, I love her stand up, and this is such a clear expression of her voice, but also going much further than I think her voice has in the past, where this is very earnest and has a lot of dramatic elements to it, um, but also some just really, really great comedy. Uh, she's great in it. So is Bill Hader. So is LeBron James playing himself, which is great. That's really um, good. Yeah, there's a whole scene where so LeBron James and Bill Hader are friends in the movie because Bill Hader's a sports medicine doctor. No. And they, they play basketball together sometimes, and it's LeBron and Bill Hader playing basketball together. And if you know, Bill Hader is not that tall. Yeah. LeBron James is. Yeah. And he's trying to play basketball with him, and LeBron will not go easy. And it is so <laughs> funny. That sounds pretty good. Yep. Anyway, great movie. One of my favorites this summer. Love that too. And uh, the biggest surprise on this list for me was Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Not because I didn't think it wasn't, was going to be good. I thought it was going to be good, because I like the Mission Impossible movies. And they've been getting better and better, frankly, once you get over the, the interminable hump that is Mission Impossible 2. Sure, yeah. Uh, but, like, 3 is pretty good. 4 is really good. This is great. This is the first one in the series I would say is a great spy movie. Cool. Now, I like spy stuff. I like espionage stuff. That's just... I think everyone has a genre where they like... Even like the shitty knockoffs of that genre. Sure, yes. Spy movies are that for me. Like I liked when I was a kid reading all the bad James Bond knockoff books, like Alex Ryder and stuff like that. I'm just into that kind of espionage thing, and yeah. I, I like even the knockoffs. Like I have yet to see it, but I'm excited to see the uh, the Man from Uncle, which just came out because that's another one of those kind of spy movie yeah. things. Um, but Rogue Nation is the real deal. It is, and it's its own thing. It's not doing a James Bond riff. It's doing its own kind of Mission Impossible flair. But it's just the action is really great, but often it's not about, you know, bombastic action. It's about cool, like, infiltration things. There's this whole long, it's like 20 minutes, sequence where they go, uh, Ethan Hunt has to go to an, I also almost said Ethan Hawke, but that is an actor who stars in Richard Linklater movies. Who Very sounds like, like, has a name that sounds like he could be a secret super agent Yes. Guy. But no, Ethan Hunt has to go kind of infiltrate this opera because there's a sniper there who's going to do something. And that whole sequence, it's done mostly silently with an operatic score. It's all about just these little moments of tension and build up. And it's as good as I've seen that kind of sequence done in Hollywood in years. I can't even think of the last time I saw that done that well. There's a similar sequence in Quantum of Solace, but that's not even this good. So they outdid James Bond, which is pretty cool because James Bond is generally in film the best at this kind of thing. And there's just, then there's some great action sequences. There's this chase in the middle of the movie where it starts with this like underwater infiltration sequence that gets to this big car chase sequence that becomes a mountain bike chase sequence or a motorcycle chase sequence through the mountains and it's all great Tom Cruise is awesome in the movie Simon Pegg's in it doing great work Ving Rhames is back after kind of sitting he mostly sat out Mission Impossible 4 but he's the only other guy who's been in all of them and uh 
Jeremy Renner's in it again. And while Jeremy Renner, I think, was very poorly used in the previous Mission Impossible, he's used very well here. Um, Jonathan, do you think a day will ever come where Jeremy Renner is cast as someone that is not, like, a cool military marine dude? Um, Because, like... You're right, he's kind of been typecast that way. Because I remember when I, for, like, a class that I had last semester in the spring... I had to watch 28 Weeks Later, which I hadn't seen in forever, and I'd forgotten he's in that movie. He's in that movie? He's sure. in that movie. Do you want to guess what character he's playing? A cool military career guy? Yep, he's yeah. a marine sniper. Nice. <laughs> well, it's funny, because he is phenomenal in The Hurt Locker, but I yeah. think... He's really... I mean, he's really good in that role, but I just found it so funny, because it's like, you know, 28 Weeks Later is like way before he was known like right. for anything. It's like, fuck, this guy was still playing this exact same character all the way back in like fucking 2006 or whatever well it's funny because while he has a penchant for that I think Hollywood used him very poorly at that for a while like I think Avengers 1 The Bourne Legacy and The Last Mission Impossible didn't use that side of his persona particularly well they just kind of had him be the boring action guy this movie Christopher McQuarrie the director and writer found a a good way to use him which is as more of a kind of authority and cerebral figure rather than just a kind of ass kicking dude because right. that's what you know the marine sniper guy would be too. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and that's good, and that's what I think he is in Avengers two also, which is yeah. makes a better use of him. Anyway, so that's great. Uh, and then the female lead, who I think her name is Rebecca Ferguson, and I've never seen her in anything. She is phenomenal in this. You could pluck her right out of this and put her in a James Bond movie, and she would be one of the best Bond girls ever. And it's not even about the romantic side of things. She's just right, yeah. she's she has it all. She's you know physically attractive, but she's also an interesting character and adds something to the movie and is. It's like the first time they've had a female character in the Mission Impossible series who really feels like a three-dimensional character. Right, yeah. So, five movies in, but they finally did it. And, uh, anyway, just the whole movie... Some movies, there are some franchises go that many movies without ever doing it. Yeah. So, So, but, I mean, it's just, it's pretty impressive to have... This is 20 years into this series, the fifth movie, and this is so far and away the best. It's like, it's it's not even funny. It's so, it's so good. Yeah, it's cool that, like... You know, the, the franchise has sort of, like, really taken its time. Like, it's yeah. just, like, 20 years, five movies. Like, that's a long time for, like, that franchise right. to keep going. And that it... Like, I'm excited to, like, sort of, like, watch them again. Because I've only seen the first one and the third one. And that was a long time ago. Yeah. And it's, like, it's really cool to think of this, like, hey, like, this movie franchise is still going. And it's just getting better. Like, it's not, like, having a bunch of ups and downs. Like, like you said, it has Mission Impossible 2, which I'll probably never watch. It's... Oh, you should watch it. You want to okay. talk about Hideo Kojima-type plot? That is like your worst nightmare of a Metal Gear movie. It is does, totally like does a Metal someone's Gear movie. arm get cut off and then another arm gets surgically planted on him, and that personality starts taking over that person, and all of a sudden they start speaking in a British accent. They might as well. the The climax of that movie is Tom Cruise and the bad guy lancing each other with motorcycles. Okay, I'm gonna watch. Yeah, yeah it's gonna, amazing. I'm gonna watch Mission Impossible. I, I want to say this: Mission Impossible Two is not a good movie, but Mission Impossible Two is an amazing movie. All right, okay. It is incredible. Apparently, I had the wrong impression of what Mission Impossible Two was. No, it's not just. It is an incredible movie. It just happens to be an incredibly shitty movie, but All it right, is an incredible okay. movie. Yeah, yeah. I have the DVDs. You can have them. Anyway. I, Mission Impossible 2 I want to say it's the only one that's on Netflix I, there might be another one and I, <laughs> Mission Impossible weird. 1 might be on Netflix but the, when I looked when this movie was coming yeah. out I was like I wonder if any of these are on Netflix I kind of want to watch the Mission Impossible yeah. movie and I looked and I was like well it's only Mission Impossible 2 like what why is the only one the one that like everyone says is really fucking bad yeah it's kind of funny I, I mean the other thing about Rogue Nation is just it's clear that people are loving it because it started and it had good box office its first week, but it keeps like barely yeah. dropping where people are, it's just got good word of mouth. And yeah. 
that's cool. It's it's definitely kind of as much as you can have a sleeper hit with this kind of atmosphere of blockbusters. This is one of them, and it's worth it. And and Tom Cruise, who produces all of these, has had a pretty clear policy of switching directors every time to kind of keep it lively. Yeah, and that's good. But if they want to, I think bringing Christopher McQuarrie back for the next one would be good. He clearly just he is such the right match for this series, and um, he just he gets it. And it was it was a lot of fun. So yeah, cool, definitely. Scratch that itch of like a really good spy movie that I don't yeah. think we've had probably since Skyfall. Um, yeah, because you know it's a it's a pretty niche genre, you know, because it's, yeah. it's like a subgenre of action oh, movies, basically. One other, there was last year there was a Most Wanted Man, which is a John Le Carre adaptation. That's not an action spy thing, but it's an espionage story. It's the same guy who wrote uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier yeah, Spy. Yeah. So um, that was really a good movie. That's a, that's a great movie. Yeah. yeah. Why can't we have a sequel to that? Yeah. God, do it before Gary Oldman dies, please. <laughs> I don't want to be morbid, but yeah, guy's not going to be around forever. Anywho, um, let's see. So that's all my movie stuff. All right. Do we want to talk about movie adjacent stuff? Sure. Let's here? fucking let's just let's roll into it. it. Okay, we're going to go back a ways, guys. There are some recent movie trailers we can talk about, and we will. But let's back up a bit because I let's know... let's go back to a more innocent time. Let's go back to San Diego Comic Con. Yes, and uh, I know we would get emails about this if I didn't talk about it, so. Let's really quickly, Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad, they had their big Comic-Con trailers. Um, the Batman v Superman trailer, I didn't necessarily think was great, but it was the first thing from this movie that gave me any positive indications. Sure, I actually yeah. thought there were some good things in the trailer. Uh, there are also some things where I'm not sure about, but overall, like the sense of, like the biggest reminder is that, okay, as much as we talk about this stuff abstractly of what the movie might be, this trailer was a good reminder that if nothing else, Zack Snyder can craft a fucking image. He can craft icon, you know, iconographic images. Yeah. And I think if nothing else, this movie will be interesting on that level. Yeah, he has a really a, strong sense of visual aesthetic. And yeah. and I hope that melds with a good story too. But I thought that was clear in the trailer. I thought some of the character stuff in the trailer was kind of interesting. And overall, it made I me... really liked that the beginning of the trailer just made me think because, like, the beginning of the trailer is Bruce Wayne. During the events of Man of Steel, like on the yes. ground, seeing that shit, and all that made me think about the entire time was Gamera Three, where they do the exact same thing, where like the like girl that like gets possessed by the monster, or whatever. She like there's a flashback. We find out the reason why she hates Gamera is because she was there during the events of the fucking end fight of Gamera One, and like her family was killed in the events of that movie. It's like it's fucking mind blowing. If Batman v Superman is as good as Gamera 3, Revenge of Virus, it'll be a really good movie. Well, there is that really cool moment in the trailer that people have found and done the GIF matches yeah, online. Yeah, of like the lasers, the heat beams coming out and like matching like where they shoot to yeah. like where Zod shoots them in Man of Steel. That's a pretty cool little yeah. touch. Yeah, it's a nice yeah like touch of authenticity. And, uh, you know, I think Ben Affleck's Batman voice, if that's really what they're going with, it's awful. But Ben Affleck himself looks good in the part. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know... Like, I think the thing that, like, most just made me kind of, like, roll my eyes at the movie was all, like, the Lex Luthor side of it. Just, like, okay. it just looked like, like, one, like, the main thing was when he says, like, the red capes are coming, the red capes are coming. I'm like, what the fuck is, like, what, like, what is that supposed to mean in the context of, like, it's, it's because if, like, the trailer puts so much weight on that line, I just, like, that line's not dramatic or interesting in the slightest because I have no context of what he's supposed to be talking about here. But then also, yeah. like, I just think, like, just don't even make him fucking Lex Luthor at some point. Like, like it just looks like they're not going for that character at all based yeah. on the trailer. It's like, obviously he doesn't look like Lex Luthor, but beyond that, it just doesn't seem like 
he doesn't give off any Lex Luthor vibes to me whatsoever in the trailer. It's like kind of disappointing because I thought like there's a chance that like and there's still a chance with like the actual movie that the characters are going to be interesting. But like when they went with the casting, I was like, oh, there's a chance that this could be like a really cool take on the character. But the trailer didn't make me like okay excited to see what he's going to do with it. I kind of half agree with that because I thought. I actually liked Jesse Eisenberg in the trailer. I agree. I didn't get any actual Lex Luthor vibes from it. Yeah. But I thought it it looked kind of interesting. It's something where there's so little of it, I have to yeah, reserve judgment. Yeah. I don't know what the red capes are coming means either. But it does play over the shot of Superman ripping the wings off the Batmobile. And that was kind of sure, cool. Yeah. So. There, like, there, is a, there is a certain aspect of the trailer where it's like, that's really cool. Like, like there's a couple of really good shots. But yeah. Like, yeah, I, I don't. I'm still. It's just. It sounds like it's going to be such a clusterfuck with the amount of characters yeah. they have and stuff. And I still remember Amazing Spider-Man two. I still have those scars. I, I and I didn't like Man of Steel, so I okay. remember that. And I remember Amazing Spider-Man two. And I'm like, yeah, you made me think about Gamera three, and I really want to watch Gamera three now. But other than that, I'm not super. I just yeah, but like the, seeing that trailer did not really change my opinions. Okay, on whether or not I want to see this movie. Better. Yeah, it made me slightly more positive. I mean, we we're going to see it either way. Yeah, but it made me slightly more positive, but not like rabid or anything. The yeah. Suicide Squad trailer, on the other hand, I really didn't like. Yeah, I thought it was like there's some things that were kind of interesting about it to me, but overall, I was like, I don't. There's like... one one thing I liked about it. I like their Harley Quinn. I sure, think yeah. that is a better live-action version of Harley Quinn than I ever, frankly, thought I would see. Yeah. And Margot Robbie just seems like the cartoon kind of brought to life, and I like that. Yeah, like, because there is a certain aspect to, like, the idea of someone doing a live-action version of Harley Quinn. You're like, that could be really bad. Yeah. It but, looks like, yeah, it looks like that character is probably going to be fine. Yeah, but everything else, like, I think the choice of song, where they just, it's the most somber recording they could yeah. possibly find, and just make it look as dour as possible over what is one of the sillier superhero movies being made right now. Yeah. Let's be honest. And then I think the moment with the Joker at the end, I, it, Jared Leto's Joker looks stupid. I yeah, just can't I get behind it. And I've like, I, also, it just like makes me wonder, what the, f- like, because I hadn't thought about it before until I saw him in the trailer, and then I realized, what the fuck is the Joker even doing in this movie? Like, he's not a member of the Suicide Squad. Like, is he yeah. just going to be a flashback? Is he, like, secretly the actual villain of the movie that the villains have to fight? Like, what the fuck is the Joker doing? Like, I, it's like the Joker is such a, like, larger-than-life character that it hadn't occurred to me before. Of Like, well, of course he's just going to be in this movie. And it's like, wait a minute. He has no fucking reason to be in this movie. Well, clearly they're putting him in the Suicide Squad, and I think someone said this on Twitter the day the trailer came out, and I agree. Clearly they're setting it up so there's going to be the good bad guys and the bad bad guys, and then at the end they're going to split and have to fight each other, and at that point I don't give a shit, but whatever. I think this movie has a chance to be cool, I just hate the way that trailer was cut. I think there's some good images in it and stuff, but I just, yeah... Yeah, not a lot to judge there because, and then there was, as you were saying before we uh, rolled on the podcast here, there's the weird way it was released, where <laughs> yeah. like everything in the history of Comic Con, it leaked, yeah. and then Warner Brothers got really snippy about it. Yeah, like the, I just remember, like there's like their marketing manager, like someone just had this like fucking thing where they're like, oh right, okay, great, like we made this trailer that we wanted to just show to the fans, the people who came to Comic Con, but. Alright, fine. You go, everyone wants to see the trailer so fucking bad. I guess we'll release it. Like, this is why people can't have nice things. It's like, it's fucking marketing for your goddamn product, motherfucker. Yeah. Like, I've never understood this culture of, like, 
we are going to like take down trailers on YouTube or like we're going to release like trailers only to this like convention panel and like wait five months to release it to the larger public. It's like it's a trailer. Like it is marketing. It is advertisement. Yeah. It is not so like it is not this fucking treat for the fans. Like a trailer can be interesting to see, but like it's not something that, like, you just need to save and, like, it's not something so precious like that. It's a fucking trailer. We see a million fucking trailers every single day, you know? Like, it's not that important. Don't make a big fucking deal about it. Release your trailer on YouTube that said, like, like an hour after you show it at the panel. Nobody at the panel is going to be like, well, this was completely pointless. Like, if the only thing you have to show to the people who came to Comic-Con is a fucking two-minute trailer... Then, like, you obviously don't really care about the fans because you're not doing anything actually special for them. Right. It's like that attitude made me so fucking mad when I read that. It's like, stupid. What the fuck? Well, let's stay on the superhero theme. Yeah. Um, this was also shown at Comic Con and then came out to the public a couple weeks ago was the Deadpool trailer. Yeah. Haha, ha, he swears. Haha, ha, there's violence. Haha, ha, it's 2001. It's Deadpool. Like, I'll say this. I think if you're a person who is a big fan of Deadpool, it looks like they are. Doing Deadpool. I will also say this as someone who has read some Deadpool comics and is vaguely familiar with the character, but not super like that. I've definitely not read like everything. I've always found Deadpool to be a completely hit or miss character in terms of like his humor, which is kind of the only thing he has. Like he has the fourth wall breaking humor is like the thing that Deadpool's got, and occasionally that can be pretty funny. The vast majority of the time, it's just I just find it incredibly grating and obnoxious because he just like makes like chimichanga jokes and shit like that. It's like. It's the lowest low-brow form of humor that's just... It's not even that it's like... It doesn't go for, like, gross-out humor. It just goes for dumb, like, mean humor most of the time. It's the Conker's Bad Fur Day of comics? Yes. That is... Yeah. That is a surprisingly apt comparison that you pulled out of nowhere. Yeah. It is the Conker's Bad Fur Day of comic book characters. Yes. And so, yeah, if you're way into Deadpool, you should probably be fairly excited about this movie because it seems like they're doing right by the character. Although, the one thing about the trailer that I saw that I was like this just seems really fucking bad is the stuff that was from I think like the original test footage stuff that like before the, like, the movie was like in pre-production or something is that scene where he's on the bridge and jumps into the car and stuff why in like a Deadpool movie with like your super over the top cheeky humor character do you film what looks like the most visually bland action sequence ever just in terms of the single most gray fucking image I've, like, ever seen in my goddamn life. Like, that whole scene, it's like the skies are overcast. He's in front of a big gray city on a big gray highway, jumping onto a big gray truck, fighting a bunch of dudes in big gray, in just normal gray clothes. It's like, it's, a, it's fucking Deadpool. Like, put some fucking visual excitement on the goddamn screen. Like, it's the most just, like, ugh. Like, it's, it's worse than, like, Gears of War 1 in terms of the color palette. Like, I just found that really shocking that that's, like, something they put in the trailer, you know? Yeah, whatever. I. It also reminded me that I every time I see Ryan Reynolds' face, I want to punch him because I think he's a fucking annoying actor. But at least he's in a mask for most of this movie. Sure. So. And then when he's not in a mask, like, he's mostly he's super scarred up most of the time. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. So. Not in the trailer. In the trailer, he's... Yeah, like, yeah I mean, obviously, like, the beginning of the trailer is, like, yeah. him going in to be Deadpool. Yeah. Getting Deadpoolified. Yes. Well, just anyway. in, inject internet into him, and yes. then he pops out and he's Deadpool. Ha! Ah! Oh, all right. So there's some other good trailers that have come out. We won't go into all of them. I love. I'm loving all the stuff from Spectre, the new James Bond. Yeah, that looks, looks so good. good. Yeah. Uh, I liked the the Hateful Eight trailer. I'm, I'm glad we're getting some new Quentin Tarantino sure, this yeah. year. 
Although I also because I I watched the that trailer like a week ago on YouTube or whatever, and like the fucking aspect ratio he's going for is so wide that like on YouTube it's like on my fucking laptop right. screen. I was like, I can barely see this. Yes. Like, well, I wonder how that's so. There's going to be the way that movie's coming out is he shot it in seventy millimeter, so it's going to get a seventy millimeter road show in December, and that'll be the first release. So it'll come to different cities that can show it. Uh, and I'm sure whoever has a 70 millimeter projector will know how to show it right. Yeah. But then I assume it'll have to be cropped for the digital release because theaters are having trouble with aspect ratios as it is. Right. Oh, I forgot to talk about that. After our last podcast, or maybe before it or something, I released kind of a rant on my site that has gotten a ton of attention. And I just wanted to mention it because, you know, maybe it's brought people to the podcast even because it's been a popular article. I, I get notices about it a lot from people. And it was about how. I went to see Mad Max again, and I think it was it was right before we did our podcast. And okay, I don't know if yeah. I mentioned this. And it was um, Cinemark Theaters is not masking their screens anymore, right? Yes. And what that yeah. means, if you don't know, is that so there are this is very simple, which is why I don't know why theaters can't get it right. There are two aspect ratios for modern film, and they've been around since the 1950s. It's not new stuff. Yeah. There is what we call flat and scope. Flat is 1.85 to 1. It's about the same as your TV at home. It's 16 yeah. by 9. Then there's scope, which is 239 to 1, which is wide. We usually would call that anamorphic widescreen. And when you go to see a movie, that's why usually they will draw the curtains. So if yeah. it's their default is usually set to 16.9, and then they will either widen to widescreen or shrink to widescreen. Yeah. And that's been happening again for like 60 years. Hmm. This is not new. This is this is movies 101. This is yeah. as basic as it possibly gets. And Cinemark, one of our biggest theater chains here, isn't doing that anymore. They have it all set to 16.9, and for a widescreen movie, they just show it letterboxed. And I cannot believe it. And that's yeah. their new corporate policy. And I've looked into this, and I've gotten emails from people, from like other managers, and, and like... And people all over the country who there's not it's not just Cinemark other chains are adopting this too. As like at that point there is literally no reason to go to the theater. There's just no possible purpose because it looks like your TV only shittier. Because at that point the whole thing with that is that you're projecting it's a light problem. So like it doesn't matter so much for a movie like Mad Max which is mostly bright. But if you have a movie with any color variation which most movies have they have light scenes and dark scenes. What happens is you have color bleed. So into yeah. the bars you'll lose parts of the image. Um, you also have things where light will refract off those parts of the screen because they're supposed to be masked by blackout curtains. Yeah. Uh, you'll also have the bigger issue of sh films are shot in a particularly particular aspect ratio for specific reasons. Yes. And when you do that wrong, then your attention is drawn the wrong way. So if you show a, a 16.9, if you show a 235 to 1 image on a 16.9 screen, your attention is drawn to the vertical aspects of the screen when it's supposed to be the horizontal aspects. Yeah. So it all looks wrong. And this may sound like just petty bitching, but it's not because this is this is not a thing to ask theaters for. This is exactly like it, it's something where it's like it's so basic and fundamental that it just it further like strengthens my position of like I don't want to see movies in theaters that yeah. much because there's no reason to. If like they don't fucking give a shit about projecting right. the movie, like I would much rather just watch the movie with the benefit of being able to like. You know, set the volume how I want it, like be comfortable in my own home, be able to go to the bathroom when I want, just pause the movie. Like all the benefits of home video, yeah, like way outweigh when th what theaters do when theaters charge way too much for movies. 
charge too much for concessions and don't give you like an experience that you can rely on to be a, like a decent way to like project and experience the movie. Yeah. And it's just it's such bullshit. And like I've so I've heard from a lot of people all over the country and they're saying this is just the policy for Cinemark everywhere. Someone forwarded me an email they got from a Cinemark manager when they complained about this and that guy clearly knew nothing about movies and he said well this is the way the movies were shot and the studio wanted this list of films shown this way and he listed some movies that I know for a fact the studio did not want shown that way <laughs> like other theaters would be doing it if that was true the only one on the list is Jurassic World was shot in a weird aspect ratio and is supposed to be slightly letterboxed that's the only one and I don't know why they did that because that movie's not good enough to be shot in a different aspect sure, ratio yeah, it's yeah. a fucking terrible movie anyway so this just if you're not aware of it just be aware of that don't give theaters money if they do this like I'm not going to Cinemark anymore which sadly limits me to about two theaters in the yeah. state of Colorado I will go to anymore because I've been boycotting Regal for a while because they're overpriced and awful and they never have bulbs in their projectors and actually I did go to a Regal theater the other day because it was just the only place I could see this movie and I as I've been doing it theaters just to investigate this I went and just jumped dipped into a bunch of other auditoriums to see how they were showing things some auditoriums were showing their movies fine then I dipped into a screening where I think it was the Mr. Holmes movie with Ian McKellen, which I haven't seen yet, but I want to. Oh yeah, and I didn't realize it's that was out. out. Yeah, and how they're, they were, show, and that's a widescreen movie. And how they were showing it is they were doing the Letterbox sixteen nine thing, except they had the movie zoomed in and the curtains drawn too tightly, so like you couldn't see like a good fifth of the screen was just it's gone. like if you're watching those like really bad home releases of Dragon Ball Z where yeah. like, they made it widescreen. You're like, like ha- like everyone's head is just cut off in this image. And here's and this is what I wrote in the article because here's the next step is they're going to start cropping widescreen movies for cinemas. That is the next step. They yeah. already do it for HBO and Netflix and home viewing options. If this is how theater, theaters are just like, you know what, we're not going to mask our screens anymore. It literally is just the press of a button and we already have it installed, but fuck it, we're not doing it anymore. Yeah. Then we're done. Then then and then what's going to happen is that filmmakers aren't going to shoot their movies that way anymore. And yeah. it's just going to be a further death of the artistic qualities of cinema in this country. And the other thing I've heard from people, uh, and I can't confirm this, but it sounds like Cinemark has new projectors that do not allow them to shift and stuff like that. So that's why they have to keep it unmasked because they can't shift the image. Because what's happening is when you letterbox it, you put it in the middle of the screen, right? Yeah, yeah. But how you would do it normally is you would put it at the bottom and then shrink the screen or blow it up and then extend the screen. They can't adjust the image size because the projectors are locked. The other thing I've heard from people is that at AMC theaters now, uh, all the projectors are run remotely from a base in Washington or something, some random state, and there are no on-site projectionists or people who even have access to the projection uh, booths themselves. No one at the theater, if there's a problem with the movie, nothing can be done about it at AMC theaters. And I had known that was coming, but I was, it's like, that's official now. And, and here's, Fuck, here has always been my stance. I don't hate digital projection for the sake of digital projection. Sure, yeah. When it's done well, like at the Alamo... The, here are the two best theaters in Colorado, if you want to know. The Alamo Drafthouse in Littleton and the Harkins in Northfield are... They show movies perfectly. No problems. Those are the best theaters you can go to for mainstream films. Um, but if you go to one of those and you see a digital projection there, it's beautiful if you do it right. It can look really nice. I still prefer 35mm film, yeah. but this is, this is plenty good. I would never complain about it. But the problem is that digital was not installed for artistic purposes. It was installed for financial purposes yeah. by the studios so they could rip you off just like this. And so yeah. theaters could cut costs and like get rid of hired and trained projectionists. Because a projectionist was never used to be like a high school student. Yeah. It was a highly trained position. If you know what you're doing, that's a tough job. Yeah, yeah, like especially like back in the day when it was like 
it was much more highly technical, right? Than like 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 now, like movies are just fucking like uploaded to like digital servers, right? And then someone accidentally like plays like Nymphomaniac at a like Yogi Bear showing or something, yes. like, or nobody's, nobody's this... fucking paying attention to what the fuck they're doing, or what ha- a bunch of kids effectively porn. Yep. Or what happened at this summer where Insidious Chapter Two played at Inside Out? <laughs> Which I love. Or three, whatever. It would, it would be well. three now. Okay. I'm sure, man. If Insidious 1 just, like, went to complete shit in the second half, how bad must Insidious 3 be by, like, the law of, like, diminishing returns for horror sequels? Right. Like, that has to be spectacularly awful. Anyway, so that's just my rant on theaters right now. It's such a clusterfuck. Yeah. And it's too bad. Yeah, it's a shame. Because it's just, like... Again, it's something where it's, like, when I was younger, I really liked going to the movie theaters because it felt yeah. like it was a experience that you're going to the theater. But, like, now it's just, like... Like like most of the time I'm sitting there I'm like oh the audio is so poorly adjusted like like I can yeah. either like it's way too loud or I can barely hear it's like uh the image is so fucking dim like I could like right. any dark scene is like impossible to see like it's so lucky like I was really lucky when I saw Mad Max Fury Road that like I didn't feel like there were any like sp- like really standout problems with the viewing experience for that movie but like most of the time it feels like there is some like glaringly fucked up thing about like the movie that I'm watching right now, or like I forget which movie it was, but I saw like oh I think it was Hobbit where they like didn't like turn on the 3D or something. You told like, me about that. That was yeah, yeah, the first Hobbit movie, and this is like, <sighs> but yeah, like, why would I want to go to your fucking theater? Like I'd rather just fucking wait for this movie to be on iTunes or Netflix or something. As like that's not like the greatest quality to watch the movie in. But like I said, all the other benefits of being able to watch it at home make it a way more comfortable way and, like, easy way to watch the movie that, like, outweighs wanting to, like, see it on the big screen for me. Yeah, and I go to movies more than you, but you'll notice I've been to way fewer movies this year than I have in the past. There's a bunch I've wanted to see this summer that I just didn't get to and probably won't get to, and it's because part of it is the only theaters I like are a long drive away, part of it is the cost, and part of it is I'm just at the point where I would rather stay home and read a book or play yeah. a game, or just do something else. I'm burned out on all of it. Yeah, like it's too much of a fucking hassle for not, for something that doesn't give you enough benefit. And I do think we're headed towards a bubble explosion on that, because there's a lot of people who feel this way. And that's, that's going to yeah, come crashing like, down. At a certain point, like right now, it's at a point where I think like the most casual moviegoer is not going to be able to notice anything. But like it's going to get to the point where it's like there's just going to be enough fuck-ups that that's going to happen. Like I feel like you like hear like the dumb story about like oh, like they showed Insidious Chapter 3 at an Inside Out screening. Like, I've seen a bunch of those headlines where you didn't, like, five years ago, you would, like, never see a headline like that. Like, it's just, yeah. Like, at a certain point, it's going to get bad enough that, like, once once it affects the casual moviegoer enough that they just stop going to movies, it's like, the theaters are going to have to figure something out. Yeah, I really do think this whole thing is going to come crumbling down and... Good, because, and I think more than anything, it's going to be the cost. Those costs keep rising, and at a certain point, there will be a threshold where people stop paying. When it gets to, like, 15 bucks, which it already is in L.A., you know, yeah. people are going to stop. And it feels like the like the window for releasing your movie digitally or, like, on home right. like video is, like, that's getting so short. We're, like, to the point where it's, like, a movie's still in theaters and you can get it on iTunes, you know? Yeah, you can already get Mad Max digitally. Yeah. So it's, like, at some point, like, that's, like, the one thing that theaters really have is that they have, like, you know, that sort of, like, in video game terms, they have timed exclusivity for the movie. Right. It's like, that's... There's... I mean, there's no reason for that to really be the case anymore when you have digital available. All right. Well, Sean, let's go ahead and wrap this episode up. We're at about two hours, and I think we've done a good thematic thing on movies and stuff. 
And uh, we're going to keep recording, but I'll put this episode out soon and then the next one in a couple of days, and we'll keep going through how we spent our summer vacation. Yeah, next up, we'll talk about a whole lot of video games. Yeah, including Batman Arkham Knight, our official final review. Yes, so, yes. 